The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Grab your pitchforks and torches. We are headed to the Dark Ages. The period between the fall of Rome in the 5th century and the beginning of the modern age that began sometime in the 14th century is also often called the Middle Ages and the Medieval Period. And if you were the average European peasant, things were in fact pretty dark. Uh, Some history sticklers consider just the first half of the Middle Ages to be the Dark Ages, but we're going to march through an entire millennium today. Better to cover a bit too much than not enough, I hope. Also, the true Dark Ages only concerns Europe. Uh, But while we'll be mainly, primarily focused on Europe during this period, and actually mostly Western Europe, the true home of the Dark Ages, we'll also take a few peeks at the rest of the world. What the hell was going on outside of Europe while European peasants were living mostly absolutely terrible lives, at least terrible compared to today. During the Dark Ages, you were bound to spend almost your entire life toiling over some small plot of land before you died around the age of 30 if you were really lucky. If you tried to upend the social order at all, if you tried to not pay the insane taxes that your church or lord levied upon you, you would very quickly find yourself at the business end of a breast ripper or some other horrific medieval torture contraption. Life for many, for sure, took a step back during the Dark Ages. In the Roman Empire, various common folk were inventing and improving and using aqueducts and indoor plumbing. A few centuries later, their descendants were farming their own shit and accusing each other of witchcraft. But is that all there is to this story? Was ancient Rome consistently great and evolved for everyone? Were the Dark Ages defined by nothing but backwards and brutal lives? Of course not. As is so often the case with historical topics and with most things in life, it was all a bit more complicated than that. European life a thousand years ago was more complicated than a simple moniker like the Dark Ages can capture. While Islamic and Christian armies warred with each other over the Holy Land and popes and kings seemed to compete to see who could exploit the common man the most, the Dark Ages were also a time where serious progress was made by some in astronomy, medicine, politics, literature, and more. In the Arab world, scholars wrote texts about medicine and science and translated the Greek and Latin classics. And even in Europe, people were still inventing things and pushing the ball of human achievement 
up the hill of progress. So just how dark were the dark ages really? How terrible was life for the average European peasant? What was the rest of the world up to while much of Europe toiled away in superstitious feudalism? We'll look into all this and more today on a feudalist fuck. Grab your turkey leg and let's get weird edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald and you're listening to Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Meat Sacks. Hail Nimrod, hail Lucifina. Praise Bojangles and glory be to Triple M. I keep forgetting to sneak him into another suck. I'm Dan Cummins, the master sucker, and you are listening to Time Suck. A reminder that the charity this month uh, is is going back into the cult of the curious uh, via a combination of Patreon money, additional donations from the cult of the curious, and matching funds given by the queen of bad magic and myself will be donating, uh, are donating over $41,000 to bring holiday gifts to 80 cult of the curious different families. So many presents, so many happy kids smiling. Uh, Queen of Bad Magic Lindsay shopping for it all right now. And hopefully next year we can help more families. Uh, Looking into forming a 501c3 nonprofit in 2021 for just that reason. So thanks to everyone who's been a part of this. Uh, Last new merch of the year, hitting the store this week at (laughs) badmagicmerch.com. A Kroll's Cafe 50s diner style coffee mug. And the most fucked up uh, Kroll's Cafe butcher's apron. Holy shit. Uh, so messed up uh, when you know Kroll's story. Also, it looks so awesome. <laughs> uh, and some new time stuck black and white vinyl decals in the store. Uh, and that's it for announcements. We're burning through them today. We got a lot of show to get to. Like, I got a lot of sweet time sucker updates at the end and so much information coming your way. Uh, so let's get into the show. Our Patreon topic voting spaces are picked a doozy of a subject to deep dive on this week. The Dark Ages. Many, many subjects rolled into one. Uh, today's episode full of events and figures that we could mine countless other sucks for. Some of these topics are ones we'll certainly be returning to at some point. In fact, we've covered a number of topics already from this period, from the Knights Templars uh, to the Black Plague, Genghis Khan. Lots to cover today. And uh, <sighs> I don't know. I'm trying to be excited, but uh, almost all of it is uh, going to be boring as fuck. Uh, it's going to be really stupid, and it's not going to be memorable at all. Honestly, if I didn't feel obligated to record this because, you know, we have a schedule and I was stuck with this topic, it was voted, you know, uh, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't even fucking listen. I would have taken my show notes and I would have thrown them in the toilet where they belong. Today is, uh, today's hands down going to be the worst episode of not only Time Suck, but of, uh, of any podcast ever made by anyone. JK, gosh dang, no, uh, what kind of silly asshole sets up the show that way? What kind of, what kind of goofy Gus is sitting here today? Uh, super interesting information lies ahead. Plenty of examples of why we're very lucky to be living in the present. Uh, and a lot of comedy awaits the uh, the curious. At least a lot of my attempts at comedy lie ahead. I hope a decent amount of them land. Let's jump into some suckage and let me get medieval on your asses. The Dark Ages have a reputation, of course, for being an intellectual sinkhole of an era. A really terrible time to be alive, at least for the people of Western Europe. For several hundred years was Europe really sliding backwards from the classical age of Rome into fragmented kingdoms of dumb, superstitious people? Depends on who you ask. Some scholars think the Dark Ages were not so dark, that they were just uh, different. Some think that sure, life sucked for most during the Dark Ages compared to today, but the same could be true, you know, or same could be said to be true for many uh, people living before and after the Dark Ages. The answer is somewhat subjective. It's not like we can travel back in time and conduct quality of life surveys with various European peasants living in various eras. 
after sitting in this topic for a week, I personally think that life in Europe definitely got shittier overall after the fall of Rome. There was plenty of darkness in the Dark Ages. Uh, the Crusades sucked for most involved. The Black Plague sucked for almost everyone involved. Uh, no one really enjoyed the Great Famine. The Hundred Years' War probably went on a bit too long. Uh, being some type of serf or servant, most common lives led by Dark Ages peasants really fucking sucked. And the heavily fo- heavenly focused uh, authoritarian Catholic Church really made life hell for many and took a lot of the joy out of life for most. I find that more church often doesn't lead to more festive, carefree revelry. A lot of people want to party like it's 1999. No one ever wants to party like it's 999. Uh, but the Dark Ages weren't all bad. It also saw the development of the Magna Carta, a new document that established the principle that everyone is subject to the law, even the king. Uh, a document that guaranteed the rights of individuals, the right to justice, and the right to a fair trial. At least this uh, document established all that on paper. Uh, the Dark Ages also saw the arrival of the Court of Charlemagne an evolution in medieval governance, a great leaps forward in architecture, art, technology, and philosophy. While medieval Europe did have less trade, fewer cities, and less cultural output than the original Roman Empire, it was also at least a bit more than a giant continent-wide backwood shithole where hunchbacked henchmen uh, spoke in cockney mumbles. It's me, my boy, a wench, and he's a goop to make me some gruper soup for my goblin children. You know, it's a bit better than that. Uh, With fewer powerful governments in the Dark Ages, wars were at least uh, generally smaller, which is one reason why Europeans living in medieval times did live slightly longer than the average Roman citizen, with the average life expectancy being 30 years uh, to to Rome's 28. So, (laughs) woohoo! Two more years of filthy peasant life. Yay, Dark Ages. What shall me do with all my life? Join an angry mob and chase people who seem different than me with pitchforks, perhaps? Catch me some plague? Be tortured by my local heartless lord. Have another cannon fodder baby with my sister wife cousin. So many fun choices for the extra two years. Uh, But seriously, uh, at least there was a wee bit less warfare in many parts of Europe. And that in some places, you know, at least made the Dark Ages a little less bloody. So what kicked off the Dark Ages? What turned off the intellectual lights for many? The fall of Rome. Uh, Let's look a bit at the rise and fall of the Roman Empire. The fall of Rome could easily fill a suck of its own, or several, an entire podcast series. Uh, We don't obviously, you know, have time to dig that deep today, Um, but to understand why the Dark Ages were considered so dark, we do need to to understand, you know, what it was that humanity lost when Rome fell. We do need to take a look at Rome. Uh, Let's take the first peek we've taken at Rome in a long, long time here on Time Suck and get a feel for the life of a Roman and a feel for the overall arc of the Roman Empire. After the 8th century BCE reign of Romulus, Rome's purported founder, a line of kings emerged from three earlier Italian civilizations, uh, the Sabine, Latin, and Etruscans. Roman's era as a monarchy ended in 509 BCE with the overthrow of its seventh king, Lucius Tarquinius uh, Superbus. Once thought that was pronounced Superbus, and Superbus was a real tyrant. Uh, He waged too many wars, tricked and killed too many people. No one wanted any more kings after they got rid of that asshole. Uh, Rome became a republic which meant property of the people. Civil authority passed to a pair of annually elected magistrates called consuls. These consuls also served as commanders-in-chief in in the army. Uh, Although they were elected by the people, the consuls were drawn largely from the Senate, which was dominated by the patricians, or the descendants of the original senators from the time of Romulus, a.k.a. the ruling class, the high society, royal bloodline folk, people born lucky with a silver spoon lineage, Politics in the early Republic was marked by the long struggle between patricians and plebeians, a.k.a. common folk, uh, who did eventually attain some political power. 
They got to have their own political bodies called tribunes, which could initiate or veto legislation. This would be a lot more power than most medieval peasants would ever have during the Dark Ages. Uh, In 450 BCE, the first Roman law code was inscribed on 12 bronze tablets and publicly displayed in the Roman Forum. These laws included uh, issues of legal procedure, civil rights, and property rights, provided the basis for all future Roman civil law. And again, these laws would be uh, more legal protection than most medieval peasants would have during the Dark Ages. Over a thousand years before the dawn of the Dark Ages, the ancient world's greatest civilization, growing more and more sophisticated. In 390 BCE, Rome is sacked and burned by the Gauls, a group of Celtic peoples of continental Europe that thrived in the Iron Age and the Roman period. And the Romans, they didn't like that. They were like, fuck, I hate being sacked and burned. I hate being burned more than I hate being sacked. For a number of years, the Romans regrouped, took over the whole of the Italian peninsula by 264 BCE, kicked those fucking Gauls out, and they further expanded their empire. Roman victories in the Punic Wars against Carthage, a large and powerful city-state in northern Africa, expanded their republic further. Rome's culture grew from its military might, benefiting greatly from contact with other advanced cultures it fought and generally conquered, like the Greeks. As Rome expanded, more and more peoples fell within the boundaries of its vast empire. And the Romans didn't just conquer and obliterate these peoples. They traded with them, studied with them, uh, governed with them, intermarried with them. And with all this mingling, their minds expanded and their cultures grew or their culture. Uh, They built theaters and schools. The poor didn't always attend these schools, uh, but at least some kids went to school where they studied philosophy, literature, mathematics, and more. Uh, The first Roman literature appeared around 240 BCE. Scholars translated Greek classics into Latin, starting the process by which Romans would eventually adopt a lot of Greek art, philosophy, and religion. The Romans likely opened Western Europe's first public library in Rome in 37 BCE. It'd be a long time into the Dark Ages before any libraries got going. Uh, had Greek and Latin wings. Gaius, Asinius, Polio. Uh, Polio, Polio, maybe? There was no pronunciation guide for this dude's name. A general lawyer, order, or orator, poet, and friend of Virgil and Horace, according to Roman historian Pliny, was the first to make men's talents public property. Uh, the first century BCE also bore witness to one of history's greatest orators, Marcus Tullius Cicero, and the rise and fall of Julius Caesar and the rise of Augustus, which took Rome out of its republic period and into its imperial period, where Rome would be led by an emperor or co-emperors. Leadership of this dynasty allowed for two full centuries of relative peace and prosperity. Augustus's dynasty would end with Nero, who ruled from 54 CE to 68 CE. 50 years after Nero's death, Rome would reach its peak size, covering roughly 5 million square kilometers of continuous empire, over 3.1 million miles, equivalent to the total size of the entire lower 48 states of the continental U.S. 13 times bigger than modern France, over 16 times the size of modern Spain. The last of Rome's final Pax Romana emperors, an age of relative peace and stability for the Roman Empire that began with Augustus, was Marcus Aurelius, who ruled in the 2nd century CE. When Marcus fell ill and died near the battlefield at present-day Vienna, he broke with the tradition of non-hereditary succession and named his 19-year-old son uh, Commodus as his successor. Commodus's incompetence and his lavish lifestyle would bring the golden age of the Roman emperors to a disappointing end. All empires rise and fall, and the fall of Rome will usher in Europe's dark ages. During the 3rd century CE, Rome suffers from a cycle of near-constant conflict. A total of 22 emperors took the throne, many of them meeting violent ends at the hands of the same soldiers who had just recently propelled them to power. And that took place in just uh, under 49 years. 
These emperors' reigns lasted on average less than two years. If you thought politics in the U.S. has been turbulent, recently we didn't. Uh, we don't have shit on third century Rome. Uh, check this out. In 238 CE, Gordian I and his son Gordian II take the throne after the previous dude, Maximinius Thrax, is killed by his own troops. Three weeks later, just three weeks later, co-emperor Gord Gordian I kills himself after hearing that his son, co-emperor Gordian II, has been killed in battle. Enter uh, Pupienus. <laughs> I swear that's his name. Clotai, who rules for three months alongside Emperor uh, Balbinus before being tortured and killed by Roman so soldiers, the Praetorian Guard. Five rulers dead in just over six months. All either committed suicide, were murdered, or were killed in battle. Two of them tortured and then murdered. And yes, uh, one of their names was uh, basically Pupianus. Uh, imagine if they had TV back then. That's what I was thinking about when I first was reading all these historical atrocities. Imagine if they had TV back then and just uh, constant 24-hour news coverage. Think about how crazy breaking stories uh, would have been back in the age of all this horrific shit happening. Hello and welcome to Roman Nightly News. I'm sensationalist Maximus, and oh my Jupiter, do I have a breaking story for you. This just in, Rome lost two more emperors minutes ago after Emperor Balbinus and Emperor Opupianus were publicly assassinated by the Praetorian Guard. Both men were literally dragged naked into the street from the royal palace and tortured and brutally hacked to death. Checking in now with our correspondent on the street, time-traveling Karen, for more updates. Are these people serious, Maximus? Two emperors were just tortured and murdered in the fucking street. What? Oh my god. When in Rome, you apparently lose all sense of decency. Where are these Praetorian guards? You don't just do that. Not on my watch. I want to speak to their Praetorian manager. Excuse me, guy with the funny hat. Excuse me, hey. Hey, get your hands off of me. Ow, that sword hurts, dick. Oh my God. Oh my. Karen has been dragged into the street and it appears she may soon be executed. And that's all for this Roman nightly news update. We'll continue to cover this developing story. More news every hour on the hour. So yeah, so that just happened. Uh, during this crisis in leadership, external threats began to take a heavy toll on Rome, including continuing aggression from Germans and Parthians and raids by the Goths. The reign of Diocletian from 284 CE to 305 CE temporarily restored peace and prosperity in Rome, but at a high cost to the unity of the empire. Diocletian decided to share his title of emperor with uh, Maximian. He felt that the Roman empire was too big to be ruled by one emperor from one place and divided it into the east and the west. A pair of generals, uh, Galerius and Const uh, Constant... My God, these names. I had it before the show, I swear. Constantius, there we go. Constantius were appointed as the assistants and the successors of Diocletian and Maximian. Diocletian and Galerius ruled the uh, Eastern Roman Empire, while Maximian and Constantius uh, took power in the West. But though they were good at sharing power, their successors would not be. Enter Constantine. Uh, Constantine emerged from the power struggle between Galerius Galerius, why can't these guys be named fucking Frank and Ted? Uh, and Constantius, as sole emperor of a reunified Rome in 324. He was actually Constantius's uh, son. He moved the Roman capital to the Greek city of Byzantium, which he renamed Constantinople. Then Constantine made Christianity legal in Rome at the Council of Nicaea in 325 CE. Uh, previously, Christianity had been just a small Jewish sect. After Constantine claimed to have had a vision and divine help during a battle, he wanted everyone to be Christian. This was a big reversal from positions of previous emperors who themselves had been revered as gods in the flesh. So the introduction of a Christian god wasn't really to their liking. Previously, Christians had been persecuted in Rome. Uh, in 380 CE, Emperor Theodosius takes Christianity from being legal 
to becoming the official state religion of Rome. And this change will have huge repercussions for all of Europe going forward. Many historians have speculated that the rise of Christianity helped lead among with other, along with other factors to the fall of Rome. How? Christianity displaced the previously polytheistic Roman religion, which viewed the emperor as uh, one of the gods with divine status, a view that obviously added to the power the emperor wielded. Hard to argue with a living God. Now the new bishop of Rome is quickly becoming the most powerful ruler in the city. The bishop and the bishop alone speaks for the new God, the only God, not the emperor. The emperor just a dude now. Gigantic power shift that changed the course of human history. After this weakening of the emperor's authority, along with many other factors, uh, excuse me, and this weakening led to Rome's fall. To be fair, uh, multiple military losses, numerous invasions, numerous plagues, inept corrupt governance, overspending were even bigger factors than religion that contributed to Rome's demise. But Christianity, uh, more specifically, the new uh, authoritarian or near authoritarian power of the Catholic Church was one of the biggest, uh, if not the biggest contributing factor in sending the Middle Ages into uh, comparative intellectual darkness. Also leading to its downfall was, a, was the Great Split. In 395 CE, Rome would again split into an eastern and western half as it had been under Diocletian. And this time it would stay that way. Rome was just too large to be governed by one emperor in the days before cell phones, private jets, and Zoom conferences. After Rome was split, the eastern part of the empire would remain for centuries as the Byzantine Empire. But in the west, Rome continued to suffer from political turmoil and threats from Germanic tribes that lived inside the empire already. The economic cost of the turmoil was too high and quickly drained the state's resources, so the government increased taxes, which had the unintended effect of widening the already large gap between the rich and the poor. A further blow came in the 5th century CE when the Vandals, a Germanic tribe, claimed North Africa and began disrupting the empire's trade by prowling the Mediterranean as ancient pirates. Uh, Rome eventually collapsed under the weight of its bloated empire, losing its provinces one by one. Britain was lost around 410, Spain and North Africa gone by 430. Attila and his brutal Huns invaded Gaul and Italy around 450, further shaking the foundations of the empire. And then in September of 476, a Germanic prince, a prince named Odysseus, won control of the Roman army in Italy. After deposing the last emperor, Romulus Augustus, Odoacer, some of these names, come on, come on, O-D-O-A-C-E-R. There's a reason a lot of people are not currently naming their kids Odoacer. Fuck, dumb name. <laughs> Sorry if you named that. <laughs> You'd be mad, mad at your parents. But anyway, uh, this guy's troops proclaimed him king of Italy, bringing in a, an abrupt end to the long, tumultuous history of ancient Rome. And, and the long fall of the Roman Empire is now complete. Following the fall of Rome, the classical knowledge that served as the foundation of Roman learning was for the most part lost to Western Europe. While some treaties uh, were translated into Latin and circulated in Western Europe, the vast majority of classical learning remained in the eastern parts of the former Roman Empire and in the Middle East. The civilization that had built 50,000 miles of road revolutionized running water with their aqueducts and arches, leading to sewers and actual toilets that carried human waste away from one's home or business. The civilization that had made advances in battlefield medicine so the life expectancy of a Roman was much longer than their neighbors and created some of the most important political and philosophical thought the world had ever seen was gone. Now, before we move on from Rome, Rome, what was life like for the average Roman? Well, it was obviously very different from one person to the next. And, you know, depending on uh, when they lived during Rome's long run, where they lived in the Roman Empire, what their status was, it would be different. But in general, if you lived in Rome and you were a Roman citizen, life was far more advanced for you than it would be in other cities in Europe uh, for centuries after Rome's fall. 
At its peak, the ancient city of Rome may have had in the first few centuries CE around a million people. Conservative estimates say at least 450,000. While Asia, particularly China, would continue to see cities of this size exist throughout Europe's dark ages, Europe would not again see a city of this size in over a millennia. How crazy is that? The urban, urban living conditions achieved during the heights of ancient Rome would not be seen again in Europe for over a thousand years. London would be Europe's next comparable megacity, and it would not reach a half million residents until the end of the 17th century. Wouldn't reach a million until the early 19th century, not that long ago. Uh, Rome itself, once it fell from its height, it fell fast. It dwindled down to uh, only roughly 50,000 people living there by the 7th century. Uh, if you lived in Rome during its height, you would have had running water. Uh, you could have had a toilet in your home that carried your waste away into the sea. Uh, you uh, could have watched elaborate theatrical performances and massive marble, beautiful buildings and giant amphitheaters. You could have listened to live music, watched incredible spectacles in the giant Colosseum, even grabbed ancient fast food, uh, get some food to go from a thermo ther, thermopylium, a shop where you could grab like baked cheese, cured meats, spiced wine, lentils, nuts, other snacks, uh, meals prepared to, you know, be uh, grabbed and eaten on the go. Could have went to a bar, had some wine, could have uh, eaten a better and more well-rounded diet than many would do, uh, be able to do during the dark ages, thanks to a wide variety of food flowing in through various trade routes. You could have also been much cleaner than many later Europeans. Running water and bathhouses allowed Romans to wash their arms and legs daily, take several baths a month. And this is for the poorer uh, Roman citizens. Could have also engaged in intellectual, political, and philosophical discourse with well-educated, well-traveled, well-cultured neighbors. Could have lived in a city with people from all over Europe, Africa, the Middle East, possibly Asia. Could have lived a more cosmopolitan and cultured life than almost anyone else in Europe would do for centuries after Rome's fall. Okay. Now that we've set up a little bit of what life looked like before the Dark Ages, at least in broad strokes, it's almost time to turn off Europe's lights. Uh, but first, a reminder that history is written by the victors. And a lot of the Dark Ages history most of us are familiar with was written by historians living soon after it was over, and many of them did have an agenda. Uh, the Dark Ages term was coined by early Italian humanists who wanted to think of themselves as you know, doing the very important work of reviving Rome's intellectual traditions. Uh, these Italians were members of the Renaissance, the European period centered in Italy, just like Rome had been, that directly followed the Dark Ages. And the Renaissance, which means rebirth or revival, was defined as a resurrection of the artistic and cultural ideals of ancient Rome. The Renaissance promoted the rediscovery of ancient Roman and Greek classical philosophy, literature, and art. Renaissance writers loved Rome. They romanticized it. And a notion of a thousand-year period of darkness and ignorance preceding these Italian scholars going back to the ancient Greek and Roman world served to, you know, contrast and highlight these humanists' own work and ideals. So the label, while not necessarily untrue, is also a bit of a propaganda term. Now, these humanists invented the Dark Ages in order to distinguish themselves from it. They exaggerated how terrible it had been before they showed up to make their achievements seem that much more impressive. That all being said, make no mistake, life was pretty dark and shitty for many during the Dark Ages. Uh, let's get a feel from, for some Dark Ages geography now. Obviously, the geographic bounds of nations changed a lot in a thousand-year span of time. So let's just look at what the European map uh, started out as in 500 CE. Uh, the Franks, Visigoths, Ostrogoths, the Vandals carved up the former Roman Empire with the Franks primarily in what is now France. Over the next two and a half centuries, the Franks will continue or come to rule most of modern-day France and much of Germany. Their kings... Uh, will be active supporters of the Catholic Church and the Pope. 
Uh, the Visigoth kingdom takes up most of Spain, part of France, the Burgundy tribe between them and the Franks. Uh, the Ostrogoth kingdom spans most of Italy and the Vandals take parts of Italy and North Africa. The Eastern Roman Empire, now the Byzantine Empire, or, or By Byzantine Empire, uh, was located in present-day Greece and Turkey. To the east, it butts up against the uh, Sassanid Persian Empire. Under the Sassanids, classical Persian civilization brought to a peak. Tribes of various other people inhabit Europe as well, like Norsemen in Scandinavia, the Angles and the Saxons in what's now Holland, though they'll soon conquer the Britons in present-day England, and the Lombards right around present-day Poland and Austria. Uh, to the northeast and east of Europe, beyond the Baltic Sea, lay the expanses of Russia and Central Asia. From here, various steppe peoples invaded and settled Central Europe. Some, the Bulgars and the uh, uh, Magyars, uh, their name's a little tricky, formed Christian kingdoms, Bulgaria and Hungary, respectively. Others, the uh, Pechenegs, conducted destructive raids. The Huns brought a huge swath of territory under their control from the grasslands north of the Black Sea, west into Eastern Europe. Under their king, Attila, the Huns struck terror into the Roman Empire, but after Attila's death in 453, their power swiftly disintegrated. Uh, thinking about how differently a map of Europe looked 1,500 years ago made me wonder, how different will our map look in another 1,500 years? Like, will the U.S. even still be around? Uh, the odds are against it. Odds are against most of our modern nations still existing 1,500 years from now. How strange is that to think about? How strange must it be to to live through the fall of one empire and, and the rise of another. Like in 3500 CE, will there be, uh, will there be just one nation? Uh, a true one world government? Will there be many more nations than we have now? Will current political polarization continue? Will tribalism fracture nations into several smaller nations? Will anyone ever rule over an entire continent? Will, you know, uh, what will future uh, historians be saying about us? Now let's look at Europe's trend away from urban life. It began at the start of the Dark Ages. Compared to before and after the Dark Ages, towns were scarce in medieval Europe, and those that did exist were pretty tiny. Uh, medieval towns were usually smaller than those in classical antiquity. In 1100 or 1200, a town with 2,000 inhabitants would be considered pretty large. Only a few towns and cities in Europe had more than 10,000 people, which is insane to me. For centuries, you know, it was r super rare to find a town with more than 10,000 people. That is not many people compared to today's towns. And uh, those with more than 50,000 were very, very rare. Even the city of Rome, the most important city in Western Europe, eventually dwindled down during the Dark Ages to around 30,000 people. Uh, London, which is, I, I mentioned, will eventually become the largest city in Europe, had only roughly 10,000 people in 1066. And what were medieval peasants doing in rural Dark Ages Europe? Well, most lived in small, thatch-roofed, one-roomed houses. And oftentimes, many of these houses were grouped about in open space, the green, or on both sides of a single, narrow street, the population of these villages didn't uh, uh, often exceed, you know, as we talked about, 100 people, not enough people to allow for a wide variety of trades and skill sets. Not going to be many shops selling cool clothes and, you know, uh, handy farm tools, and weapons in a village of 80, 90 people. The life of the average medieval peasant was one of a, a lot of hard work, change with the seasons. Small animals required slaughtering during uh, the fall as it was not economic or practical to feed animals during the winter. Meat was then preserved in salt, so much salt. No one gave two shits about hypertension back then. Uh, bread was the mainstay of the medieval peasant. Corn, grain, cabbage, ale, cider, uh, also, you know, commonly uh, digested goods obtained from the local area. I doubt any of it tasted as good as your local ba bakeries, you know, blueberry muffin, or as good as 99% of the bread you can find at your local grocery store. Your grocery store probably has uh, King's Hawaiian, original Hawaiian sweet rolls, 
right? Those are fucking delicious. I don't know why I thought of those with this episode. A medieval peasant, if they tasted just one of those, would probably kill everyone in their entire shitty village just to have a second roll. Uh, many medieval peasants were serfs, slaves for most intents and purposes, uh, tied to the land they uh, worked, you know, land that was owned by their local noble. People had very few rights for most of the Dark Ages. Most serfs could not leave their lands or stop working on them without the permission of their lord who wasn't going to give them that permission. Uh, when did serfdom begin? Uh, while it didn't become truly widespread until the 10th century, a form of serfdom was uh, initiated by em Emperor Constantine early in the 4th century. Uh, and the daily life of medieval peasant who worked the land, yeah, again, super hard. Their days started in the summer as early as 3 a.m., often lasted until sundown. A medieval peasant might start their day with some pottage, a thick soup or stew made by boiling vegetables, grains, and if available, meat or fish, some good old breakfast soup. Nothing gets a meat sack moving in the morning faster than breakfast soup. I was thinking about this one uh, the week of this research, and I decided to try some split pea soup for breakfast. Not even joking. And it was not a good call. It fucked my stomach up. <laughs> my body was like, what are you doing? A big bowl of split pea soup at 6.30 in the morning? What's wrong with you? It's 2020, not 1020, jackass. Uh, back to peasant life. There's a lot of work to be done, depending on the time of year, reaping, harvesting with a scythe, sickle, or reaper, uh, sowing, the planting of seeds needed to be done. There was plowing, the breaking and turning over earth with a plow to form a furrow, uh, binding and thatching, haymaking, threshing, hedging, a lot of shitty work. No shortage of physically demanding tasks to be toiled over. Men did most of this work. Women generally raised as many dirty kids as a couple could pop out before they died young. They kept their tiny house clean, helped in the fields when they could. Women churned butter, grew and harvested herbs and vegetables, made clothing for the family, uh, did all the cooking, ate when their husbands and children were finished, had very little leisure time. Also, they rarely bathed. Uh, more on that later. Some men and women worked directly for their lords in and around their castles. Servants and medieval peasants had to provide meals in the castles, undertake menial tasks for their lord and his family. Uh, many of the medieval peasants who worked in the castles were women. Women worked in the kitchen, were expected to cook, clean, wait on the Lord. Other medieval peasants worked uh, jobs like stable hands to help with the horses and worked as kitchen staff. Uh, horses had to be fed, groomed, stables had to be kept clean, that sort of thing. And what did all these peasants wear? I found this very interesting. I don't know why it surprised me so much. Uh, mostly they wore tunics, really shitty tunics. Uh, their tunics were made either by folding over a long piece of fabric, typically wool, cutting a hole in the center of the fold for their neck, or by sewing two pieces of fabric together at the shoulders, leaving a gap for the neck. Uh, sleeves, not always part of this garment, could be cut as part of the same piece of fabric, sewn, closed, or added later. Uh, tunics fell to at least the thighs, though the garment might be called by different names, different times and places. The construction of the tunics, uh, essentially the same for centuries in many parts of Europe. So basically, poor peasants in Europe, living in the Dark Ages, wore the equivalent of fucking garbage bags with holes cut out for arms and their heads. Like they wore something not really that much better or more comfortable than a burlap potato sack with arm and head holes. Uh, dudes would wear thigh-length tunics and the women would wear ankle-length tunics. And like I mentioned, these tunics were made of wool, cheap, crudely crafted wool. You, you ever worn uh, cheap wool? It fucking sucks so bad. It's super itchy. It's always too hot. It does not breathe. Uh, poor Romans had also worn tunics centuries before, but they wore nicer tunics. Uh, by the mid-Republic, their tunics were made out of linen instead of wool. Linen, way less itchy, far more breathable. So giant step backwards clothing-wise, heading into the Dark Ages, when it came to overall uh, tunic comfort. 
Now let's talk about church. How did church change European lives during the Dark Ages? Uh, change their lives so much. Ancient Romans before Christianity, they really didn't go to church. They occasionally visited shrines, shrines, you know, dedicated to various gods. You know, they had shrines set up in their homes to offer sacrifices, pay tributes to various gods, but they didn't really go to church and listen to sermons every week. You know, the priests and priestesses of various gods didn't have that much influence over the daily life of the average citizen. Romans didn't worry about their local priest, you know, a local priest of Jupiter showing up at their house, accusing them of being a devil witch, having them burned to the stake. Uh, you could be executed for some bullshit in Rome for sure. But generally outside of the early days of Rome when Christians were persecuted for not worshiping the gods of Rome, you weren't gonna be killed for religious differences. Uh, the Catholic church changed that a lot during the dark ages. The word Catholic derived from the Latin late or late Latin term uh, Catholicus, which came from the Greek adjective Catholicos, translates to universal or general, fitting, considering that the Catholic church would strive to rule everything and did rule almost all of Europe and later much of the new world at the height of its power. Uh, after the dissolution of the Roman Empire, an idea arose of Europe as becoming one large church state called Christendom. Uh, Christendom was considered, consisted, uh, supposed to consist of two distinct groups of functionaries, the ecclesiastical hierarchy and secular Christian leaders. In theory, these two groups would complement one another, attending to people's spiritual and temporal needs. In practice, these two institutions were constantly sparring, disagreeing, openly warring with each other. Europe's medieval rulers often tried to regulate church activities by claiming the right to appoint church officials, uh, to intervene in doctrinal matters. They tried to appoint loyalists who would let them rule as they saw fit. The church in turn promoted church leaders loyal to Rome. Uh, bishops and cardinals would try and keep Europe's rulers under the thumb of the Vatican. And the church would end up essentially owning cities and armies and regulating affairs of the state. It would become incredibly powerful. Uh, kings and queens often forced to do as the church demanded. Kings and queens would levy taxes, uh, in theory at least, to protect the bodies of their peasants, protect them from foreign armies. The church also would levy taxes now against you in medieval Europe, tithes collected in theory to protect your soul. Uh, a king could threaten to uh, not protect you in times of war if you didn't pay or torture or execute you. The king had serious power to wield over you. You know, they could torture and kill you for some bullshit and no one could do anything to stop them. Uh, and, and as could, for the most part, your local dukes and lords. The church, though, had even more power. Uh, they could threaten the damnation of your eternal soul. So much power in that, the most. In Rome, during its height, uh, as I mentioned, you know, emperors were gods. They had the power to overrule any and all priests. But during the Dark Ages, the Pope, and through the Pope, the Catholic Church as a whole, now trumped the power of any king or queen. Massive paradigm shift. Uh, if you're a peasant, you fear the church more than you fear the ruler. Uh, your king can take away your life. Your king can throw your life away, but your priest can throw away your soul. The church collected a 10% tithe from its followers and almost everyone was a follower. Most had to be in the dark ages, at least publicly. Uh, yes, there were some Jewish and pagan and Muslims living in medieval Europe, but not as many as Christians. And these other groups were generally treated as second or third class citizens and protected far less than peasants were. If you weren't Christian in Europe during the Dark Ages, your chances of being burned to the stake or murdered in some other fashion or run out of town increased greatly. Uh, as the Dark Ages wore on, more and more of Europe became Christian and people were raised to fear the Christian God from childbirth. And that fear gave the church so much fucking power. I know I keep saying that, but it's so true. And echoes of this early power still reverberating around the world. Uh, when I was thinking about this while compiling notes, I imagined a medieval peasant, you know, behind on their tides getting a, an actual bill like one we get today from like the cable provider or someone else we owe money to. Reminder, your spiritual account is 30 days past due. 
If we do not receive your tithe balance in 10 business days, we will be forced to terminate your ability to live forever in heaven with your family and our Lord. Failure to pay will result in your spiritual account being referred to a collection agency. Once your spiritual account is 90 days past due, it will then be handed directly over to Satan. Beelzebub and his demon minions will then spend a subsequent eternity chewing on your soul, burning you alive over and over as you wail in anguish forever and ever. Amen. Please see Father Wilson at your earliest convenience within 10 working days to settle your spiritual account, avoid excommunication, and once again be welcomed into God's grace. So, you know, you you risk burning in hell if you didn't pay your tithes to the church. And you paid other taxes to medieval monarchs and lords who were supposed to protect you from foreign invaders. But that protection offer didn't show up when it was needed. Uh, If foreign invaders showed up uh, and you didn't make it inside the castle walls fast enough, you were fucking dead or captured forced to work for, be taxed by some other asshole now. You you pay taxes to your king, you pay taxes to the church, you pay taxes to the nobleman in between you and the king, and you really got little to nothing in return. Feudalism was terrible for peasants. Landless peasants toiling away for their entire entire lives for their noblemen, uh, you know, just uh, who, who the king had given large pieces of land to in exchange for the loyalty of the nobleman's army, an army that would help defend his kingdom, an army often composed of peasants, the noblemen employed these surf sacks to work the land with most of the fruits of their labor going back to the noblemen. And then some of that money bumped up to the king. And the church also got some money from the noblemen as well. Uh, medieval serfdom was like a big MLM, a big multi-level marketing scheme. Except as a peasant, you had zero chance of moving up from the bottom level to the top. It was a pretty dismal life. Uh, the lack of personal freedoms would inspire a number of would-be thought criminals to form counter-movements and secret societies. Illuminati! And their early visions of rights and liberties would inspire later Renaissance and Enlightenment thinkers. Since the Catholic Church was the focal point of medieval society, uh, what culture did exist in the Dark Ages often revolved around it, mostly, almost entirely revolved around it. Gothic architecture, which was designed to inspire and intimidate the viewer into worshiping God, that architecture thrived. Uh, The Pope, who could undermine basically all civil authority in Europe, was effectively, uh, you know, the the, the social influencer, the, the only social influencer that mattered. Uh, in the Dark Ages, dictating what kind of art and literature was uh, enjoyed, what was allowed. Another event that defined the Dark Ages was the rise of Islam in the Middle East. Following the death of Muhammad in 632 CE, Islam quickly, like really quickly, spread throughout the Middle East, with Muslim forces conquering kingdoms and establishing authority of their new religion. By the late 7th and 8th century, Muslim conquests had expanded into present-day Turkey and Spain, Uh, They expanded out of their homeland in Arabia and conquered the rich Egyptian provinces of the Byzantines and the entire, uh, oh man, (laughs) Sasanian Empire, all in the space of about 100 years. While the Catholic Church had a complicated relationship with science and reason, uh, they didn't want anyone coming for their worldview. Muslim scholars translated Greek texts and made important advances in mathematics and science. Uh, They even introduced the game of chess to Europe. Knowledge and of science and medicine in the Islamic world was far more sophisticated than in Western Europe. Uh, During the Dark Ages, the Muslims boasted the biggest city in Western Europe during the Dark Ages. In the 10th uh, 10th century, the Muslim city of Cordoba, Spain, the largest, greatest city in Europe, somewhere between 100,000 and 400,000 people. No other city in Europe exceeded 50,000 at that time. Cordoba boasted paved streets, a form of public lighting, uh, luxurious villas with indoor plumbing, Patios, gardens, fountains were refreshing oases against noise and blistering summer heat. Public baths kept bodies clean. The city dazzled with its civilized air and multicultural activity with Muslims, Jews, and Christians all mingling together. 
Cordoba enjoyed a booming economy thanks to its skilled artisans and agricultural infrastructure, famous for its leather and metalwork, glazed tiles and textiles. The variety of agricultural goods introduced by the Moors was astonishing. Oranges, lemons, limes, watermelons, figs, pomegranates, uh, pomegranates, uh, almonds, bananas, artichokes, eggplants, spinach, sugarcane. And then the Catholics conquered it in the 13th century, and then it became a shell of its former self. Uh, by the 18th century, only around 20,000 would still be living in that sleepy city. At its height, Cordoba was the capital of the Caliphate of Cordoba, part of the Umayyad dynasty. At its height in the 8th century, this dynasty ruled all of Northern Africa that lied along the Mediterranean. Nearly all of the Iberian Peninsula of modern Spain and Portugal, the entire Middle East, part of modern-day Turkey, modern-day Iran, Turkmenistan, part of Afghanistan, and more. And uh, one of several powerful Islamic states. Uh, the Abbasid Caliphate overthrew most of the Umayyads in 750 CE. The Abbasids, like any conquering medieval empire, were brutal. Sometime in 750 CE, they had a banquet of blood to complete their overthrow of the Umayyads. Over 80 Umayyad family members invited to a grand feast uh, on the pretext of reconciliation, given their desperate status and hope for fair surrendering terms. Apparently, all of the invitees ceremoniously made their way to the Palestinian town of Abu Futras. Once the feasting and festivities were done, almost all of the princes were remorselessly clubbed to death by the Abbasids, eliminating the possibility of Umayyad return to a caliphate power. So very Game of Thrones. Uh, no one could fully defeat the Abbasids until the Mongols in 1258. Uh, the Abbasids were more open to foreigners and their ideas. Their toler or that tolerance and curiosity ushered in a golden age of Islamic learning centered in Baghdad. Uh, the Abbasids oversaw an uh, efflorescence of culture, unlike anything that had been seen since Hellenistic times. Arabic replaced Greek, not only as the language of commerce and religion, but also of culture, philosophy, medicine, poetry, written in Arabic. Baghdad was the world's center of scholarship with its house of wisdom and immense library. Muslim scholars translated the works of the Greek philosophers, including Aristotle and Plato, as well as scientific works by Hippocrates or Hippocrates, God dang it, <laughs> Archimedes, they translated and preserved Buddhist and Hindu manuscripts that might have otherwise been lost. Muslim mathematicians expanded math to such a degree that we now call the base 10 number system and the symbols we use to denote it Arabic numerals. And religion was at least part of what pushed all that learning forward, like the great philosopher uh, Ibn Rushd, probably butchering his name, uh, argued he, that the only path to religious enlightenment was through Aristotelian reasoning. And Muslim mathematicians and astronomers developed algebra partly so they could simplify Islamic inheritance law. Plus, they made important strides in trigonometry so that people understand uh, where to turn when trying to turn towards Mecca. In the Islamic world, for a period, science and religion actually worked very well together. There was a lot of intellectual progress being made in the Islamic states. Uh, life was also brutal many, uh, for many of the people living in that Islamic medieval world. I pointed out how harsh life was for the Christian peasant, only fair to point out that it wasn't a walk in the park for the Islamic commoner either. Uh, slaves were commonplace in the caliphates. Non-Muslims had to pay additional taxes to live and work in the caliphates. They often had to wear clothing that would distinguish them from Muslims so everyone could visually see who the second-class citizens were. Women, women had it especially rough. Uh, harems were common for important men. Those harems comprised of sexual slaves. Criminal punishment, very severe. Criminals stoned to death in these Muslim theocracies operating on Sharia law. Thieves, for example, would have their hands cut off. Uh, life was great in certain cities, like Cordoba for some, brutal for many others. Now, also the rise of Islam led to a lot of bloodshed in its wars with Christians. 
Islam's expansion did not sit well with many European Christians in the Dark Ages. On November 27, 1095, Pope Urban II called upon Christians to go to war against Muslims in an event that has become known as the Crusades. We touched on the Crusades in our two-part suck on the Knights Templar a few years back. Uh, the Crusades would last from 1095 all the way into the 15th century in some form, occurring in waves. Anywhere from two to six million people would die in the Crusades. Uh, the goal of the First Crusade was to recover the Holy Land from Islamic occupation, specifically Jerusalem. The First Crusade largely successful, but then subsequent Crusades saw varying degrees of success and failure. And then eventually they failed altogether and the Muslims reclaimed the Holy Land. Uh, okay, now that we know, uh, you know, about uh, just how dark medieval Europe got, let's get to this week's disease-ridden, be glad you're alive today, enjoy simple pleasures like being able to take a warm bath and sleep on a lice-free bed, uh, really, you know, get into the details of the Dark Ages in this time-suck timeline after a word from our sponsors. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything is that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. 
Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. I still love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but I'd stopped eating them almost entirely a while back because the bread on top of the sugar from the jelly made me so sleepy. All those carbs caused me to want to take a nap after eating them. Enter Hero Bread. Hero Bread takes the fear of carbs out of bread, but still leaves you with that delicious bread taste. Hero Bread has zero to one gram of net carbs, zero grams of sugar, and it's high in fiber. It's also delicious and flavorful. The soft, fluffy experience you love when enjoying a savory breakfast burrito or mouth-watering cheeseburger. There is something for every craving, including sliced bread loaves, buns, and tortillas. And there are monthly small batch drops of indulgent favorites, like the two grams of net carbs Hero Croissant or the one gram of net carbs Hero Cheddar Biscuit. I had a loaf of Hero Classic White Bread delivered last week. Soft, fluffy, and delicious. Five grams of protein per slice, and it's high in fiber. And the best part? Hero Bread doesn't taste healthy. It tastes like bread. It's great. Don't give up on being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use code TIMESUCK at checkout. That's TIMESUCK at H-E-R-O dot C-O. Thank you, Meat Sacks. Hope you just heard some deals that appeal to you. Now it is timeline time. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time suck timeline. Four seventy six CE, Rome falls, throwing Europe into the Dark Ages. Forty years later, in five sixteen CE, the Benedict of Nursia writes a text called the Rule for Monks Living Communally Under the Authority of an Abbot. The rule comprises 73 short chapters. It's uh, wisdom, but wisdom in quotes, uh, is twofold. Spiritual, how to live a Christ-centric life on earth, and, ad- and also administrative, how to run a monastery efficiently. The rule, uh, a kind of written constitution laying out standards for the monastery and congregation and limiting the abbot's authority according to these standards, spreads across Europe, eventually becoming the model for most Western monasteries throughout the Dark Ages. Finally, uh, the Benedict's insistence that the idleness is the enemy of the soul and his rule that monks should do manual as well as intellectual and spiritual labor, labor excuse me, is the forerunner of the Protestant work ethic. And uh, I looked into this book a little bit and it sounds fucking terrible. Uh, here's a summary of one of the chapters. Chapter seven divides humility into 12 degrees or steps in the ladder that leads to heaven for the monks. Number one, fear God. Love that that is number one. Love God? No. Be comforted knowing that God loves you. Ah, no, no. Fear God. Fear thine angry God. Uh, number two, subordinate one's will to the will of God that you fear. Uh, three, be obedient to one's superior. Four, be patient amid hardships. Okay. Five, confess one's sins. All right. Uh, six, accept the meanest of tasks and hold oneself as a worthless workman. Eh, not, not a big fan of that one. Seven, consider oneself inferior inferior to all. 
Not, not liking that one. Number eight, follow examples set by superiors. Nine, do not speak until spoken to. Oh man, this is rough. 10 is even rougher. Do not readily laugh. Don't laugh. Uh, 11, speak simply and modestly. And 12, express one's inward humility through bodily posture. What the fuck? <laughs> I know I've referenced The Handmaid's Tale a lot in the suck, you know, here and there recently, but this, this really is some Handmaid's Tale shit. This is no way to live. Who, who is running these monasteries with these kind of rules? Some fucking 1960s American, just, you know, army drill sergeant. Be afraid, monk. God is angry. He hates your scrawny, worthless ass, private monk. Don't you fucking look at me, private monk. You put some humility into that posture of yours and look at the fucking floor. I will personally send your ass to hell. You fuck up, private monk. I dare you to fuck up one time. Satan is all around you waiting to snag your soul for readily laughing. You fucking monk maggot. Did you just speak when you were not spoken to? You fractured motherfucker. Nice haircut, private monk. I'm joking. It is shit. You are shit, you worthless workman. Did I just smell you taking pride in your life? You fucking worm. You fucking pile of monk shit. God, I wish baby Jesus himself was here to karate kick your dead eye monk swine right in your tiny lip versus monk dick, you piece of shit. That's the vibe I get uh, from those rules. <laughs> My God. Uh, fuck the Benedict of Nursia. Uh 525 CE. <laughs> That 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 uh that drill sergeant he's coming back to suck. Uh, the term anno domini is invented. Anno domini, which translates to the year of our Lord in English, is where we get the abbreviation AD to reference the time after Christ's birth. A monk named Dionysius creates these new uh, new calendar eras as part of his efforts to understand which days Easter will fall on subsequent years. Uh, systems of dating before BC AD, before Christ and anno domini. Uh, fully adopted were um, often based on significant events and political leaders. The Romans generally described years on who was consul or by counting from the founding of the city of Rome. Some might also count based on what year of an emperor's reign it was. Egyptians all, uh, also used a variation on this system, counting years based on years of a king's rule. So an event might be dated like, like the fifth year of bloody blah's rule. Uh, and <laughs> it sounds very confusing. Dionysius wanted the year 1 AD to be the date when Jesus Christ was born, although later calculations show that his birth occurred before this, gradually the use of this calendar became more widespread. Uh, I choose to use CE and BCE, common era and before the common era, which denote the same times as AD and BC because, uh, you know, just because the whole world is not, not Christian. Uh, a major pandemic known as the Plague of Justinian strikes the Middle East and Mediterranean regions in 541 and 542 CE, causing the deaths of an estimated 25 million people. The plague is thought to be bubonic. 800 years before the Black Death, the bubonic plague may have already killed millions in Europe. Uh, many, many plagues would fall upon medieval people. It's probably in part because the hygiene standards of the day were absolute dog shit, to put it lightly. As running water was very rare, and, and considering it took such a, you know, so much physical effort to get a bucket full from a well or a nearby water source, not surprising that taking a full bath every day was not feasible as an option for most people. Uh, monks, for example, were typically prohibited from taking more than two or three baths in a year in their monasteries. Of course they were. Of course they were denied baths. <laughs> What's that, you monk maggot? Did you just say you wanted a bath? Didn't you just take one three months ago, you fucking diva? Well, Lati fucking da! Should I grab some lavender and rose petals, private diva monk? Want me to wash your back and scrub your balls, you uppity monk maggot fuck? Get out! 
Get out of this monastery. Go starve in the cold. Go bathe yourself in a frozen pond and go to hell. You private muckmacking motherfucker. Jesus hates you and so do I. I don't know why you got Southern uh, towards the end there. Uh, a Lord <laughs> might have a padded bath. I'm really, I'm, I'm at least cracking myself up thinking about, <laughs> thinking about some abbot just screaming at these monks. Uh, a Lord might have a padded bath for extra comfort and usually travel with one. Such was the uncertainty of finding the convenience of a bath on one's travels. They were so fucking rare. A uh, Lord could take as many baths as they liked. Much better to be a dark age as Lord than a monk. Uh, the vast majority of peasants made do with a quick swill of cold water scooped up from the local creek or spring or well. Uh, while a full bath was very rare for peasants, it was common practice for many to wash at least their face and hands in the morning. Uh, that was primarily to get rid of the fleas and lice off of their faces and hands uh, that was left over from the bedding um, that they'd slept on the night before. So can't always kill those fleas and lice, you know, but you can drown a few each morning. This is also horribly sad. Uh, rarely changed straw bedding was a particular paradise for vermin like uh, lice and fleas. Even if some preventative measures were taken by peasants, such as mixing herbs and flowers like uh, basil, uh, chamomile, lavender, mint into the straw, peasants uh, did at least have, you know, generally uh, clean hands, kind of. Uh, as most people ate meals without knives, forks, or spoons, just eating with their hands, it was also a common convention to wash hands before and after eating. But I, I should put like wash and italics because, you know, cold water, no real soap, just, just washing some turkey grease off your hands as best you could, uh, wiping your hands on your shitty wool tonic when you were done, and then going down to lay on your bed of mattress lice straw. Ah. In addition to using cold water to wash their hands, peasants also would drink water. That's, there's a common myth that medieval peasants never drank water. It never made sense to me. Uh, how could you survive drinking only beer and wine your whole life? Maybe you can't. At least, at least I don't think you can. I don't think you'd fare too well. Uh, even if you can, they did not. Peasants didn't avoid drinking water altogether because it was dirty and made them sick. They did try and avoid dirty water. Uh, and they also did drink from wells and clean streams. What about teeth? How did Dark Ages sad sacks clean their teeth? Teeth were cleaned using twigs. <laughs> I love that. Just twigs, especially hazel. You know, I got to get a nice hazel twig for your teeth. And small pieces of wool or linen. <laughs> I can't remember thinking about how shitty toothbrushes must have been before we had, you know, toothbrushes. Imagine never being able to brush your teeth. Just that alone. How gross would that be? Ever spent time around someone who legitimately just never brushes their teeth and they get that real thick layer of plaque, this white pasty goop all over their teeth. Uh, their breath smells like death. That was what, I mean, a lot of people were like back in the dark ages, <laughs> like people with, people with excellent oral hygiene habits were scrubbing their teeth with hazel twigs and wool. There's no way that could have worked out very well. Uh, toothpaste were made of stuff like ground sage mixed with salt crystals or powdered charcoal uh, from rosemary stems or uh, a, a crushed pepper, mint, rock salt combination. <laughs> All of this is really ruining uh, the sexy medieval maiden fantasy. I may have run through my head a, a time or a thousand in my life. Why, Lucifina? Were sexy, buxom peasant women, were they really this dirty and stinky? They might not have been this bad. Uh, archaeological records show less tooth decay in the teeth of medieval peasants than in today's people, actually. Because uh, while they didn't have toothpaste, they also weren't eating tons of processed sugar. Uh, they weren't eating any. And medieval uh, peasants, those who could afford it, had mouthwashes made from herbs and spices, steeped in wine and vinegar, mint, uh, majorum, cinnamon, also popular. People chewed on fennel seeds, parsley, cloves. So I guess my fantasy can kind of live on. Some peasants were not, uh, you know, dirty, filthy monsters, but I bet a lot were. Uh, on, on to more hygiene. What about shaving? Shaving was either not done at all 
or like once a week, unless one was a monk, in which case, uh, in which case one was shaved daily by a fellow brother. Uh, shaving instruments did exist back then, but if you were some poor ass surf peasant living in a backwood thatch village of 70 dirty farmers, you know, you didn't have a barber, you didn't have a shaving blade. You might have just had to live with some straggly beard full of fleas and lice and shit. Maybe a couple birds, you know, have nested in there. Maybe a family of chipmunks. Now let's talk about toilets. In villages or on manor estates, the peasantry used a cesspit, a big communal outhouse for their own waste, uh, which might then be taken and spread across their fields as fertilizer. Or sometimes you had a little hole that you dug yourself, like a little, little mini cesspit. You sat on a bench or something, just a crude version of an outhouse. Uh, chamber pots were used at night or when it was cold. Then you emptied the chamber pot into the cesspit or in your little shithole. Then maybe you didn't wash your hands. It was awesome. Also, you didn't really wipe your ass. Without toilet paper or really paper of any kind, people had to make do with a handful of hay, grass, straw, or moss. <laughs> toilet life for rural dark ages serfs. It was like going camping today. If you went to a campground that had no bathroom and you forgot to bring toilet paper and you forgot to bring soap and you didn't have any way to boil water and instead of just like staying for the night or over the weekend, you just stay, you stay for the rest of your fucking life. Uh, toilet life was a little bit better in castles. The toilets in a castle, also known as privies or latrines, at least had the waste uh, channeled down into a, a cesspit at the foot of the castle walls or into the moat. Sometimes it would end up being funneled into the moat, which is an added defensive measure not talked about much in military history or shown in a lot of medieval films. The moats were full of human shit. How much do those moats smell? Uh, sometimes castle toilets might empty into a channel, which would then be regularly fl flushed with water from like a diverted stream. Uh, and that was as good as it got. That was like a, the best dark ages life right there. Where you could have your shit funneled into a creek. That's when you, you knew you were living the dark ages high life. When you had plenty of moss, you had the finest moss to wipe your ass with. And you didn't have to smell your own shit every day. And you maybe had less lice and fleas in your hair than the peasants living on the other side of your shit moat. That's when you were balling, baby. Uh, now let's talk about how nasty the food was back then. Poor food preparation and storage was a common source of ailments. Epidemics of er ergotism, known in medieval times as St. Anthony's fire, caused by eating rye that had been poisoned by fungi because it was, you know, it was rotting, um, expired. Symptoms included painful seizures and spasms, diarrhea, Itching, mental effects included mania, mania, excuse me, psychosis, headaches, nausea, vomiting, sometimes death. Uh, we don't know how common food poisoning was back then, but it may have been very common until just a few years ago. It was thought that salmonella uh, had only been around for about 125 years. Nope. It's been around for at least 800 years in Europe. Uh, people died all the time back then. They would just get ill and die and no one would know if they had been poisoned if they had, you know, got some, got some kind of plague or some other pathogen or maybe got severe food, food poisoning. So much disease back then. Uh, skin diseases, particularly prevalent. Uh, all manner of skin afflictions were caused by poor diet, terrible hygiene habits, random pathogens and parasites. It really paints quite the picture, doesn't it? That lovely maiden from movies like Braveheart, Robin Hood, The Princess Bride, she must have been so rare. Uh, probably didn't exist at all like the actresses that play them now. No one back then looked anything like a young Robin Wright or Keira Knightley. No one had personal trainers or used expensive medical grade dermatologist designed skincare regimens. No one was getting mani pedis at the spa or seaweed face wraps or having their teeth straightened or whitened or cleaned at all. No one was putting on sunblock to prevent, you know, sun damage or, you know, heading to the salon to get their hair dyed or heading to their waxer to get their eyebrows thinned out and defined or have most or all of their pubic hair removed. They weren't taking multivitamins or going on juice cleanses or taking Pilates and yoga classes. They weren't putting on deodorant or powder in their balls, just maybe rubbing some bay leaves or some other type of herb on their hairy, lice-infested sweat pits. 
I don't know, maybe I'm exaggerating how bad it was, but they comparatively were definitely filthier, uglier, and stinkier. And so were the men, not just the women. Prince Charming didn't look like Brad Pitt or Zac Efron or Idris Elba or whoever you men-loving suckers are thinking is hot. I wish we could go back in time somehow and just see what they really look like. I just feel like compared to today, pretty fucking rough. Um, okay, hygiene overview complete. I found that fascinating. Let's head back to the timeline. 570 CE, Muhammad, one of the most influential religious and political leaders in human history, born in Mecca. When he's 25, he marries and lives for the next 15 years as a merchant. Around 610, he claims to have had a vision in this cave in which he hears the voice of a majestic being, later identified as the angel Gabriel, say to him, you are the messenger of God. Uh, this kicks off a lifetime of religious revelations where he and others, you know, uh, collect uh, as the Quran, the foundational text of the Islamic faith. And a new religion is born and it grows so fast. The followers will soon take over much of Northern Africa, all of the Middle East, a good chunk of Europe. Today, it's the second largest religion in the world behind Christianity with over 1.8 billion followers, roughly a quarter of the earth's population. 590 CE, Gregorius and Anasis, oh, fucking name, is elected Pope, taking the name Gregory I. I got that. Gregory, nailing it. Uh, also known as Gregory the Great. He's credited with being a reformer, excellent administrator, founder of the medieval papacy, bringing the church even more secular and spiritual power before he died in 604. How does he do this? Well, he's born into troubled times. Cities and commerce have declined. Cycles of famine and plague are depopulating the countryside. It's awesome medieval life. Uh, centralized bureaucratic controls are fragmenting, enabling local strongmen, aka warlords, to take control of various parts of Christendom. Pope Gregory has to make a choice. The church can either act as a check against a new rising military aristocracy. In Rome, the Senate is defunct. Uh, the new papacy assumes civic responsibilities, or he can serve the secular ambitions of the strongmen and their patronage networks. It was a petty, uh, or it was pretty, excuse me, Game of Thrones. You could either try to be a reformer, or you could go with the easier and much less deadly option of just pairing up with somebody strong. Well, Gregory decides to go with the first option. He establishes colleges of rectories, defensories, with staff sent to manage estates, protect peasants from exploitation by the nobles. Gregory's most important reform is making land inheritable. Uh, like his concern for justice, this reform improves the lot of peasants, encourages them to remain in one locale to cultivate the land. Debatable if it really improves it. Uh, because, you know, they couldn't leave the land without their nobles' permission. That's, but we talked about that. Uh, getting the people's favor meant more clout for the Catholic Church, more power. So it's a win for Gregory. Um, at the same time, he also plays dirty with neighboring states like the Italian province of Ravenna uh, by claiming that he gets the right to appoint bishops in various states, and then controlling those bishops, effectively bringing the territories under papal control, you know, more power. 622 CE, the prophet Muhammad and his followers leave the city of Mecca after facing persecution and establish themselves in Medina. At Medina, Muhammad builds a theocratic state, leads raids on trading caravans from Mecca. As God wants, go raid some caravans. Uh, attempts by Meccan armies to defeat the Muslims' forces fail, and several leading Meccans immigrate to Medina to become Muslims. They're going to go with a, with a strong hand. And random thought right here. We've talked about so many cult leaders on Time Suck. Uh, basically, anyone who claims to have direct access to God's word to suddenly hear God talking to them, I've talked over and over about how you're supposed to run away from that person as fast as you can. See Tony and Susan Alamo, David Koresh, David Berg, etc. But we give ancient people who did the exact same thing a pass. Right, see Muhammad, Jesus. Ever wonder if all the world's religions began when someone like Emmanuel David or Yahweh Ben Yahweh claimed to be, speak on behalf of God? Sometimes I wonder about this. Like, what if the main difference between a cult and a religion is just you know how many people believe 
and how long it's been around. Also, uh, even if either Muhammad or Jesus really did speak to God, since they came up with uh, different belief systems, doesn't that mean that only one of them could have been right? Which means that at least one of them was a co-leader? And finally, if A, God is real, and B, God does speak on earth through a prophet, then C, what if none of the ancient prophets were the real prophets? What if some modern prophet I've already labeled as a cult leader was actually God's true prophet? What if Father Yod is the real deal? And we all just fucking missed the boat, right? What if this is what we should have been paying attention to this entire time? that was the true word of God we just heard. Man, I hope not. I'm done now. Just wanted to share uh, the kind of shit I lay in bed and think about with you guys. Uh, Back to the Dark Ages. 651 CE, the Islamic conquest of Persia is complete. After about 20 years of warfare, the Sasanian Empire collapses, allowing the first Islamic caliphate, the Rashidun, or excuse me, Rashidun Caliphate, to take control of most of its territory, expanding Islam's reach. 7 one, uh, 7-11. <laughs> uh, 7-1-1 CE, Muslim forces invade and in seven years conquer the Iberian Peninsula in Spain. In Spain. Spade? What am I talking about? After the first victory, the Muslims conquer most of Spain and Portugal with little difficulty and in fact with little opposition. By 720, Spain is largely under Muslim or Moorish as it was called control. The heartland of Muslim rule in the, was southern Spain or Andalusia. Islam grew so fast, less than a century earlier, Muhammad was getting essentially kicked out of Mecca. Now they're running shit in the Iberian Peninsula. The southern tip of Spain is over 6,000 kilometers, over 3,700 miles from Mecca. Holy shit. This this is comparable to if the uh, Mormons, after getting basically kicked out of Missouri in 1838, uh, then took over the entire Western United States and formed their own powerful empire during the Great Depression of the 1930s. Like it happened that fast. From 717 to 718, the siege of Constantinople ransacks the capital city of the Byzantine Empire. The one-year siege by the Umayyad Caliphate ends with the Muslim Arab Umayyads withdrawing. It was the second Arab siege of the city. Wouldn't be the last. The Ottoman Empire would eventually take the city in 1453. Constantinople would actually be besieged 34 times throughout its long, long history. 732 CE, despite not being able to take Constantinople, the Islamic Caliphate keeps expanding their empire. From Spain, they begin encroaching on territory occupied by the Franks uh, by the early 8th century. The Islamic Caliphate has no setbacks until they meet with Otto of Aquitaine, also called Otto the Great. He won a victory at the Battle of Toulouse that temporarily halted the Muslims' previously unstoppable military machine. Otto had to get help to beat him. He joined forces with Charles Martel, a Frankish leader. They had previously been enemies. Charles agreed to help uh, on the stipulation that Otto's land become part of the Frankish kingdom. Franks were steadily growing stronger under Charles. The Franks met Islamic forces led by the uh, Umayyad Caliphate in northeastern France in October of 732. Charles Martel and his forces fight General Abdul Rahman uh, al Ghafiki. Uh, Charles' forces are well-trained, fought with the equipment and organization that echoed the hoplite formations of the ancient Greeks, used the geography to his advantage, putting himself at a higher elevation than the enemy, used trees and rough terrain to protect his infantry from cavalry charges. The first several days result in several skirmishes with no clear victor. Then there's the final major battle. The Muslim army had tried a uh, a had a tried and true method of wearing down the enemy with interchanging light cavalry and heavy cavalry charges. With no real reason to try something different, the cavalry crashes into the Frankish formations who stood firm. Uh, Frankish troops withstood the attacks and lashed out hard whenever their experienced and patient troops saw the right opportunity. Around the second day of fighting, the cavalry broke past a Frankish formation and towards Charles. 
Charles and Charles's guard entered the fight and sent several Frankish scouts to raid the enemy camp, causing havoc and freeing prisoners. The Muslim army feared for the safety of their treasures, and many rushed back to the camp, leading other Muslim soldiers to believe that their army was retreating, which made an actual full retreat start to happen. The Franks then swarmed in uh, on their retreating foes. The surviving Muslim soldiers fled in the middle of the night, carrying whatever loot they could take on their backs. Historians estimate that the Muslim army lost around 8,000, 10,000 soldiers, compared to a loss of about 1,000 soldiers for the Franks. Though not a crushing victory, it nevertheless stopped the expansion of the caliphate further into Europe. Charles was given the nickname of Charles the Hammer. Charles in charge uh, for crushing his enemies, and both he and Odo would be considered heroes of Christianity. By allying with various tribes and territories and bringing them under his authority, Charles formed the Frankish kingdom. His family line would go on to produce Charlemagne, the first Holy Roman Emperor. 793 C, Viking raiders from Scandinavia attack a monastery at Lindisfarne. Lindisfarne, one of the places where civilized learning had weathered the darkest years of the Middle Ages. Thus begins two centuries of terror as more invaders pour out of Scandinavia and spread throughout Europe. For more on the Vikings, check out Suck 135. Uh, Christmas Day 800 CE, Charlemagne, also known as Charles the Great, crowned emperor. On Christmas Day, the uh, Carolingian ruler, that's the family line that Charles the Hammer, Charles in charge established, is crowned emperor of the Romans by Pope Leo III, the first person in Europe to hold this title. Charlemagne deserves his own suck, so we won't go into a ton of detail on him here. But one big thing he did uh, was that he helped nurture a few small embers of preserved knowledge from before the fall of Rome, using the power of the church. This period was known as the Carolingian Renaissance, a time when Charles the Great tried to reestablish knowledge as a cornerstone of, cornerstone of society. Uh, he was a brutal man of war, but he was also a great believer in the power of learning. His Frankish empire covered most of Western Europe, and he instigated a revival of art, culture, and learning using the Catholic Church to transmit knowledge and education. He ordered the translation of many Latin texts and promoted astronomy, astronomy a field that he loved to study despite his own inability to read. Uh, sadly, this renaissance did next to nothing to change the daily life of the average medieval peasant. New ideas were basically only studied and shared by the clergy and did not kind of trickle down from the church. A group of Vikings settles in northwestern France in 820 CE. They will become known as the Normans, fairly important group of people in Europe. Uh, August 843, the Treaty of Verdun ends a war between Charlemagne's grandsons for his empires. Upon the death of Charlemagne, his sole surviving son, Louis the Pious, inherited the entire uh, Carolingian Empire. Louis had several sons, and though he wanted the empire to remain a cohesive whole, he divided and redivided the territory so that each could govern his own kingdom. After extensive fighting between Lothair, Louis the German, and Charles the Bald, the Treaty of Verdun agreed that Lothair was allowed to keep the title of emperor, but he no longer had any real authority over his brothers. I think we've talked about Charles the Bald before. What a terrible nickname. No one knows for sure how he got it. Uh, he actually is thought to have never had a full head of, or he's actually thought to have had a full head of hair. Some think he was actually extremely hairy and the name was ironic, kind of like calling a big guy tiny. Uh, bald may have also been a reference to him as a young man not owning any land. However, he got the nickname, I doubt he loved it. I wouldn't be pumped to be introduced as Dan the Bald, Dan the Hairless, Dan the High and Thinning Hairline. No one wants a title like that. Stand and raise your goblets for your new king, Dan the High and Thinning and getting kind of wispy hairline. Hey, why, why'd you add wispy? I already, didn't I already didn't like it. Now you're tossed in wispy. Uh, Charles the Bald's brother Lothair received the central portion of the empire, which included parts of present-day Belgium, much of the Netherlands, some of eastern France and western Germany, most of Switzerland, a substantial portion of Italy. 
Charles was given the western parts of the empire, which included most of present-day France, and Louis took the eastern part, which included most of present-day Germany. And this agreement basically led to the formation of the modern boundaries of France and Germany that we know today. 862 CE, a Varangian chieftain named Rurik rises to power in what was called Rus and would later be Russia. Rurik establishes his dynasty, the Rurik dynasty, which will, as we learned in the Ivan the Terrible Suck, go on to produce uh, czars that will rule over Russia until the beginning of the 17th century, shortly before the Romanovs take over. 886 CE, King Alfred the Great captures London from the Danes and for the first time in British history unites all Anglo-Saxons. 897, Pope Stephen VI holds a super fucking weird trial. This is so good. At the Basilica San Giovanni, San Giovanni Laterano in Rome, something like that. And it ushered in what even devout Catholics would call the most corrupt era of the papacy. Uh, Stephen VI had been Pope for less than a year and then he orders his predecessor, Pope Formosus, dug up, because this guy's dead, and placed on trial for political reasons. You heard me. He's going to have a dead guy put on trial. Stephen VI's reason for desecrating this corpse could have been to shore up some political alliances with a faction that hated Formosus. More likely, it was to cover up for the fact that Stephen was guilty of the same exact things he was accusing Formosus of. Formosus had made Stephen bishop, a bishop of Rome, and Stephen had become bishop of Rome, a title that comes with the papacy, while he still held that post, which I guess was a big no-no, not how it's supposed to be done, didn't follow procedure. And if Formosus could be found guilty of that same crime, being a simultaneous bishop of two places, his actions would be null, and then Stephen wouldn't have been a bishop when he was elected pope. And, th- and there's more complicated reasons that really don't matter. I just This is just an interesting moment here uh, in the history of medieval Europe. Um, he might have just done this because he was fucking completely insane, too. How crazy is this trial? Excuse me. A dude had been dead for seven months. They dig him up, dress him up in his papal robe, sit him in a pope chair, and then new Pope Stephen yells at this corpse, this rotting fucking corpse, in front of a bunch of other witnesses for hours. Uh, they even had a deacon appointed to speak on behalf of the corpse. How awkward for that guy. Uh, for Moses, his rotting corpse is found guilty. He's stripped of his papal finery. Not done. Then, in front of everybody, Pope Stephen has his blessing fingers cut off. So he wants a couple fingers cut off this guy. And then they rebury him. Still not done. Stephen has the body dug up again. Yells at us some more. Then has the corpse thrown into the Tiber River. What the fuck? Again, imagine the news coverage. Something like this would get today. Hello and welcome back to Roman Nightly News. I'm Sensationalist Maximus and oh my Jupiter, do I have another breaking story for you. This just in. Pope Stephen has found the rotting long-dead corpse of former Pope Formosus guilty of wanting to still be Pope or something like that. It's all honestly pretty confusing. We just heard from our correspondent on the street time-traveling Karen that after screaming at the body for hours, Pope Stephen has apparently started coming, cutting some of Formosus' fingers off. Karen, uh, what more can you tell us? Is this guy serious, Maximus? Fucking what? He's cutting this dead guy's fingers off. He's supposed to be running the church? Not on my watch. That is not how you do church. I may have missed a few Bible studies, but I know that Jesus didn't say shit about cutting dead people's fingers off. Hey, Pope guy, are you out of your mind? You need to get your head checked. That's outrageous. Don't you look away from me. I'll have your job. I'll steal your ass off until I'm Pope. I'll own this whole damn town. Hey, get your, ow, that hurt. Get your hands off me. Looks like some soldiers are carrying Karen away now. This, this can't be good. Be sure to check back in later on the Roman Nightly News developing story. More news every hour on the hour. Yeah, so, you know, be a weird story. Uh, 9-11 CE, an agreement between King Charles III, also called Charles the Simple, 
not a great nickname again, but maybe better than Charles the Bald. Uh, and the Viking leader Rollo establishes the Duchy of Normandy as a defense against other Norse raiders. This area had been suffering from Viking raids since 820, so almost a century. As part of the agreement, Rollo converts to Christianity and changes his name to Robert. Bobbert's story is then embellished upon by later Christian writers who hold him up as a role model, a savage Viking chief who became a paragon of Christian virtue and established law on the land. Uh, the Normans will emerge as a significant group over the next two centuries. 919, a uh, big year for meat sacks. marks the first time gunpowder was used that we know of. Uh, did not happen in Europe, happened in Asia. It was used in a naval conflict during the five dynasties and 10 kingdoms period in China between the states of Wuyu and Wu. The Wuyu, uh, probably not saying that right, could not find a pronunciation, uh, managed to destroy 400 enemy ships, then capture 7,000 prisoners with their gunpowder-fueled flamethrower. Man, that's poor enemies in that battle. Just seeing that for the first time, having no idea it existed. Uh, they also had the flamethrowers uh, decorated with silver so that if the enemy captured them, they would take the silver and leave the petrol and fire-starting apparatuses. Uh, Gunpowder would not reach Europe until the 13th century, three centuries later. 955 CE, the German king Otto I defeats a tribe of nomadic invaders called the Ma Magyars. The Magyars later became Christianized and founded the nation of Hungary. Otto, thenceforth, was known as Otto the Great. Uh, a few years later, 962, Otto the Great crowned emperor in Rome, reviving Charlemagne's title. Uh, from this point on, most German kings will be crowned ruler of the Holy Roman Empire. 979 CE, the Song Dynasty reunites China. This new dynasty would uh, last for over 300 years until 1279. With a prosperous economy and culture that valued literature, the arts, and scholarship, this period was considered a, another period or, uh, of golden age after the Tang Dynasty ended in 907. As for the development of science and culture, tremendous achievements were made during this period. So a lot of cool stuff happened in other parts of the world, even if it's not necessarily uh, happening in Europe. Two of China's four great inventions, topography and the compass, both invented, and the development of gunpowder is accelerated. Things are going great over in China right now. Uh, kind of. For the average person, life is shit in China, too. Chinese farmers had tough and difficult lives, just like European you know, peasants. Most were serfs. Uh, who lived in small villages, just like their European counterparts. They worked day and night. And like the Europeans, they didn't own the land that they worked on. The property was owned by a noble or king. In addition to working on the noble's land, the farmer had to give gifts to the noble, essentially a tax. And farmers had to work for the government for around one month each year. They had to serve in the military or do construction projects like build palaces, canals, city walls. Farmers also required to give a percentage of their crops to the government as tax. Uh, so despite some cool tech advancements, despite more urban living going on in China than in Europe during the Dark Ages, the life for the average meat sack over in China, really not any better than life for the average meat sack in, in Europe. 987 CE, Russia converts to Greek Orthodox Christianity, gradually begins adopting Byzantine culture after Vladimir the Great marries Anne, sister of Emperor uh, Basil, or Basil, excuse me, uh, the second. That's tough because his name is spelled exactly like the spice, uh, or the herb. Whatever. It's a, it's, a, it's a spicy herb. I don't know what it is. 1001 CE, Vikings led by Leif Erikson sail westward to North America and during the next two decades conduct a number of raids on the coast of what is now eastern Canada. Uh, 1014 CE, after years of conflict with the Bulgarians, Byzantine Emperor uh, Basil uh, defeats them. Emperor Basil is furious that the Bulgarians have killed his favorite general. He also doesn't want to have the uh, to fight them any, again anytime soon, so he does something very, very medieval. He has 8,000 prisoners, and he orders that 99 out of each 100 men be completely blinded, as then he has their eyes gouged out. And then he allows every 100th man to keep one eye, 
so that that, that dude can lead 99 other dudes back to Bulgaria. 8,000 dudes, so 7,920 are now completely blind. Both eyes gouged out. 80 of them still have one eye. And these, and these fucking, this motley crew of gouged soldiers march back to Bulgaria. And according to legend, their leader, Emperor Samuel, dies of a heart attack when he sees them return. Uh, Basil earns the nickname the Bulgar Slayer. And what happened to all those blind soldiers? Uh, no idea what happened after they got back home. Nothing good, I'm assuming. And yet just another example of what a terrible time it was to be alive for most. Uh, 1025 CE, uh, As- uh, Avicenna, also known as Abu Ali Sina, writes the Canon of Medicine. The Persian scholar completes an encyclopedia of medicine, which will remain the standard work on the topic until the 18th century. So for many centuries, the Canon of Medicine organized into five books. Book one covers the basic principles of medicine. Book two lists approximately 800 individual drugs of vegetable and mineral origin. Book three discusses the diseases of individual organs. Book four discusses medical conditions that affect the entire body, such as fevers and poisons. And book five lists some 650 medicinal compounds, as well as their uses and effects. And today, this book is, you know, mostly useless. <laughs> but at the time, it was, uh, it was a little bit better than what other people were doing. So while Persian scholars are inventing modern medicine, what kind of medical care were Europeans uh, looking forward to? This is going to be fun to explore, mostly because it's not happening to us right now. Uh, in the Middle Ages, the practice of medicine was fucking barbaric. Uh, it was still rooted in the Greek tradition. People thought the body was made up of four humors, yellow bile, Phlegm, black bile, and blood. That's what that's what makes up a human. You know, you got your yellow bile, you got your black bile, you got some phlegm and blood. That's pretty much it. Uh, and these humors were controlled by four elements of fire, water, earth, and air. Uh-huh. Uh, medieval doctors believed that the human body and the planets were made up of the same elements. It was believed that the moon had the greatest influence on fluids on earth and that it was the moon that had the ability to affect positively or negatively the four elements in the body. Where the moon and the planets were, a knowledge of this was considered important when making a diagnosis and deciding on a course of treatment, right? Might be the flu. Oh, wait a minute. Look at the moon. Nope. Probably plague. We thought it was flu, but if you look at the moon, it's fucking plague time. Uh, physicians needed to know when to treat a patient, when not to, and the position of the planets uh, determined that because they didn't fucking know anything about how science worked. Uh, they thought that an imbalance of humors created, you know, caused disease, that the body could be purged of excess by bleeding, cupping, leeching, that kind of stuff. Uh, urine inspection was the most common method of diagnosis of disease. Gotta look at the piss, figure out how sick somebody is. Uh, the urine flask was the symbol of the medieval doctor. And I think we covered all or most of this in the Black Death episode, but fun to look at it again. The shit is just so crazy. <laughs> they had no idea how the body or diseases worked. Uh, by the ninth century, medical schools were starting to spring up, but they didn't learn, uh, you know, much of anything that was useful. Uh, people people studying at these places, physicians trained at these universities were also just a luxury only for the rich. Uh, most peasants, if they got sick or hurt, ended up being treated by somebody. That somebody was usually a monk. One of those life-hating poor bastards we talked about earlier. And, and the monks would administer medicine made from herbs, spices, and resins. You know, they'd take a peek at the piss, toss a couple leeches on a patient, that kind of shit. You know, get yelled at by their drill sergeant. Get your piss flask, grab your herbs, and go doctor, you worthless monk maggot motherfucker. Did you just smile at me, you friar tuck sack of monk shit? Did I just see joy on your face, private monk? I will beat you to death. I will send you to hell myself. Good Lord, I wish baby Jesus was here to uppercut your ass up into your head so everyone else could see the shit for brains I have to look at every day. Now, maybe that was going on. Uh, The oldest surviving English herbal manuscript is the Bald's Leech Book. A lot of bald references to this show. Uh, in about AD 900, excuse me, CE, whatever, 900, 950, vapor and herb baths were prescribed for all kinds of ailments. 
Uh, the book shows how common it was to smoke the sick with fragrant woods and plants. <laughs> this book is useless. Uh, <laughs> the smoke is not a good you know, treatment, and there was a lot worse treatments. Uh, one cure for a headache in this book is to bind a stalk of some crosswort to the head of someone with a red kerchief. Why red? Who knows? This is insane nonsense. Uh, this book offered treatment for livestock as well. Uh, one cure for a horse in pain was to have the words, bless all the works of the Lord of Lords inscribed onto the handle of a dagger. Uh-huh. Also, the author of this insane book mentions uh, that uh, the pain that the horse is feeling probably caused by an elf. So, you know, maybe you should check for elves around the old horse stall. Holy shit, these people were so fucking dumb. And I know they couldn't help it. Not their fault, but still. Just these people back there. Doctor, my head still aches. What must I do? Of course your head still aches, you fool. You've wrapped your crosswalk in a pink kerchief. I said red. I was very clear. You're lucky your legs still work. Wrapping your head in crosswalk with a pink kerchief is known to cause paralysis. And I'm not surprised your horse is sick as well. You misspelled bless. It's two S's, you fool. You're lucky the devil doesn't rape your sons. Everyone with half a brain in their head knows that carving bless into one's dagger is the quickest way with, to get your son's demon raped if you only spell it with one S. Uh, medieval doctors also clean wounds with vinegar, thinking that would kill disease. Uh, that actually can destroy some bacteria and viruses, such as salmonella. So, you know, all right, little props there. Uh, mint was used in treating venom and wounds. Uh, mint doesn't actually help with venom. It does, ha it does have anti-inflammatory properties. It can reduce itchiness, so I guess kind of, but it doesn't, doesn't stop the venom. Uh, myrrh was used as an antiseptic on wounds as well. It can also act as an anti-inflammatory. Uh, back in the Dark Ages, no real experimentation was done to test the efficacy of uh, particular herb treatments or ailments. You know, if the patient just got better, happened to get better after some random treatment, they're like, well, that worked. So let's just keep doing that. Uh, also, even crazier, many Dark Ages herbalists believe that herbs that resembled various parts of the body, just visually, could be used to treat ailments for that part of the body. For example, the spotted leaves of lungwort used to uh, uh, treat tuberculosis was used because it just kind of looks like, like lungs of someone with tuberculosis. <laughs> now, this has no medical validity. Of course, it's just like superstition. Uh, there's no scientific evidence whatsoever that plant shapes and colors line up with you know parts of the body and can be used to cure those parts of the body. I picture old-timey doctors prescribing carrots for a lot of dick ailments. Now, if something goes wrong with your balls, they just, they just give you an apple to eat. Anything goes wrong with your vagina or your vulva or some other lady parts, well, they fucking good luck. Maybe they give you oysters or something to eat. Uh, back to the timeline. 1040 CE, movable type, a way of printing books and other documents. It goes a lot faster than the old way of engraving an entire page is developed, uh, but not in Europe. Uh, B. Sheng is credited with pioneering the use of wooden movable type around 1040. This technology would develop and expand outside of China soon but movable type would not reach Europe until the 15th century, four centuries later. 1054 CE, the Great Schism begins, splitting the church between the Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church, uh, and then churches. The schism was the culmination of theological and political differences that had developed during preceding centuries, differences that still exist today. Catholics considered the Pope to be Jesus Christ's representative on earth and the successor of the Apostle Peter, who was appointed by Jesus as the first head of their church. According to them, he's infallible on matters of doctrine. Whatever he says goes. Orthodox believers reject the infallibility of the Pope and consider their own patriarchs to be human and thus subject to error. The Orthodox faith also rejects the Catholic doctrine of the Immaculate Conception of the Virgin Mary, in which Jesus' mother was conceived without original sin. They actually don't accept the concept of original sin at all. So there's no need for Christ uh, to not be a human being. 
Also on a sexier note in the Catholic Church, while celibacy, the vow of abstaining from marriage and sexual relations is obligatory for priests, most Orthodox churches have both ordained married priests and celibate uh, monastics. So celibacy is an option. Those Eastern priests can't and do get their fuck on. Hail Lucifina. Uh, on October 14th, 1066, the Battle of Hastings goes down between the Norman French army of Duke William of Normandy and the Anglo-Saxon King Harold Godwinson. Big battle for the Dark Ages. Uh, this battle lasts from about 9 a.m. to dusk. Early efforts of the invaders to break the English battle lines had little effect. Therefore, the Normans adopted the tactic of pretending to flee in panic and then turning back on their pursuers. Harold's death in this battle, probably near the end of it, led to the retreat and defeat of most of his army. And further marching and or after further marching and some skirmishes, William is crowned king on Christmas Day, 1066. And this Norman conquest changed the face of England and Western Europe forever. Uh, particularly, it, uh, it created the language spoken on this podcast. Spoken poorly, <laughs> but still. Uh, the combination of Norman French words of Latin origin and Anglo-Saxon words, a Germanic language, created the English language that we use today. For example, royal, law, pork come from Norman French words, but king, rules, pig uh, come from Saxon ones. So cool little bit of trivia there. Hail Nimrod, uh, 1071 CE. The Seljuk Turks defeat Byzantine forces at the Battle of Man Manzikert in Armenia. As a result, the Turks gain a foothold in Asia Minor, today is known as Turkey, and the Byzantine Empire begins a long, slow decline. January 28th, 1077. One of the most interesting events to come out of the Dark Ages takes place. The event known as the Walk of Canossa, or the Way to Canossa, was a breaking point in the struggle for power between the Holy Roman Emperor Henry IV and Pope Gregory VII. A year earlier, on February 22nd, 1076, Pope Gregory VII had made the following declaration in Rome. Need some uh, papal music here to play behind this. On behalf of God Almighty, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and by your power and authority, I deny to King Henry, son of the Emperor Henry, who with unheard of pride has risen up against your church, the government of the whole kingdom of the Germans and of Italy. I absolve all Christians from the bond of any oath that they have made or shall make to him, and I forbid anyone to serve him as king. For it is fitting that, because he has striven to diminish the honor of your church, he himself shall forfeit the honor that he seems to possess. Finally, because he has disdained to show the obedience of a true Christian, and has not returned to the God whom he forsook by communing with excommunicated men, by, as you are my witness, disdaining my advice which I sent him for his salvation, and by attempting to rend your church and separating himself from it, by your authority I bind him with excommunication. Fuck that motherfucker. Pope out. Uh, he said most of that. Everything except maybe those last few words. So, I mean, strong words, though. This ex excommunication was the last straw in a vicious smear campaign between these two rulers. This is the Pope, you know, letting him know, like, I run shit. I'm in charge. And if you don't fucking bend your knee to me, I'll fucking toss you out uh, of Europe. That's what he's trying to do. Uh, Emperor Henry had accused Pope Gregory of practicing necromancy, hiring assassins, even destroying the Eucharist. Right? There's been a lot building up to this. Uh, my favorite accusation there is necromancy. You don't hear about a lot of uh, world leaders accusing people of being necromancers these days. Uh, Pope Gregory responds to his necromancer accusations by excommunicating Henry's supporters 
and threatening to excommunicate him as excommunicate him as well. Uh, Pope, you know, or Henry's supporters do not like this. Emperor Henry claims that Gregory has never been elected properly. Uh, then Gregory Gregory replies by then excommunicating Henry in that speech I just read. Bold move for a pope to say that he could deprive an emperor of his right to rule. Uh, on January 25th, 1077, with the blizzard raging, Henry arrives at the gates of the Italian castle of Canossa uh, to beg for forgiveness. After this, here is Gregory's own account written just weeks after of how that went down. Let me get going that uh, church music again for some, for some ambiance. Finally, he came in person to Canossa, where we were staying, bringing with him only a small retinue and manifesting no hostile intentions. Once arrived, he presented himself at the gate of the castle, barefoot and clad only in wretched woolen garments, beseeching us with tears to grant him absolution and and forgiveness. Wait a minute. Uh, That's not the same song as before. Uh, wait, oh, no, 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 oh, okay. I thought, that, I thought that sounded different. That was Two Life Crew. That was Two Life Crew, We Want Some Pussy, not the Sound of Catholic Cathedral's uh, one-hour spiritual chants. Sorry about that mistake. That, that really could have happened to anybody. Uh, anyway, Gregory went on to say that Henry begged for forgiveness, and then he removed his excommunication. Uh, before being absolved, Henry had to promise Gregory that he would behave better. He promised to pay attention to the grievances of religious officials in his domain, to not interfere with Gregory's travels, to take him prisoner. He also promised to help him in any conflict with anyone else who might oppose the Pope's authority. Uh, Afterwards, uh, you know, excommunicating the emperor, according to sources, Henry was so angry that he didn't touch his food, spent the entire evening digging his fingernails into a wooden table. So he's not happy, but having to beg for forgiveness. With a final blessing from Gregory, Henry departs Canossa, heads back to his supporters. Medieval chroniclers have argued that Henry only did this to appease his nobles and keep stability in his empire. And uh, even though he begged for forgiveness here, three years later, they'd be back at it. Within three years, the Holy Roman Empire and the Pope fighting again. Gregory <laughs> excommunicates Henry another time. And now uh, with no a need to placate his rebellious nobles, Henry doesn't bother to seek forgiveness. Instead, both sides fight to depose each other and, and war would be waged in both Germany and Italy. Cue 50 years of fighting. This power struggle between the Holy Roman Empire and the papacy would weaken the power of, of both. Uh, the first of many crusades is launched in 1095 CE. Uh, the crusades are complicated. That's a vast subject. We, we explored a bit in the Knights Templar. Uh, two-part suck a few years back. Probably have its own suck someday. Right now, just uh, go over a few interesting points. November 27th, 1095, Pope Urban II calls upon Christians to go to war against Muslims in the event, of course, that's called the crusades. He says, all who die by the way, whether by land or by sea, or in battle against, let me put some church music back on shall have immediate, uh, wait, oh gosh, that's not, okay, this is probably better. Yeah, okay, that's a better mood. Uh, Anybody who dies, whether by land or in sea, or in battle against the pagans, shall have immediate remission of sins. This I grant them through the power of God, of which I am invested. Uh, Do just hold warriors of Europe that if you fight on behalf of the Christian church, when you die, you're absolved of all your sins and you go straight to heaven. That sounds like a cult leader move. Uh, This decree would lead to the conquest of Jerusalem four years later and a concerted effort by Western Europeans to take control of the Near East. Uh, And this this decree led to a lot of bloodshed, a lot of atrocities. On December 12th, 1098, crusaders massacred Muslim soldiers and civilians alike in the city of Ma'ara. It came at the end of a long siege. Around 20,000 people were killed after being promised mercy. Uh, Just as horrible was the cold winter, dwindling supplies and starvation. Contemporary chroniclers wrote about some of the crusaders after they had, you know, uh, you know, won this this battle, boiling 
and then grilling the bodies of their conquered foes and eating them. Yep, they really did that. Uh, it was written about by numerous contemporary chroniclers that the Crusaders ate a bunch of their enemies. And uh, that reminds me that we do have one more sponsor to go over today. Time Suck is brought to you by Kroll's Cafe and Malt Shop. Hello, fellow diner and sexy cow lover. This is Jahim Kroll. And I want you to come to my cafe down in Strussel Sauerkraut. We have the finest chocolate malts and the sexiest hamburgers. Mostly people come for the blue light specials. This week we have a Crusader special, so much Muslim meat, finger steaks, hand soup, face cutlets, thigh meatloaf. It's all cow meat, of course. <laughs> it's flavored with Muslim herbs and spices. It's, prob it's probably cow meat. Always a bit of surprise at Cross Cafe. Be sure to bring in the kiddies. I would love to cover the happy plates with copious amounts of semen. Cross Semen Brand Fry Sauce is quite delicious. A rich and creamy recipe. A house made by myself each and every morning. So come on down to Cross Cafe where it's always mostly beef. I promise. Uh, thanks for putting up with all this meat sacks. Uh, been a while since we had Cross sponsoring Sponsoring the show. That feels good to have Kroll's Cafe back on there. Uh, 12th century, the Dark Ages get a bit brighter. Much of the knowledge of ancient Greece had been unknown to Western Europe for many centuries, but now Latin translations of Greek and Arabic texts begin to be imported into Europe. Uh, rudimentary arithmetic and geometry is taught again, now in monasteries and monastery schools. So taught to some. Uh, students in universities beginning in the 12th centuries also study astronomy alongside arithmetic and geometry and slow progress in all three disciplines begins to be made. Uh, another 12th century innovation uh, is, is the iconic architectural feature known as a flying buttress. It first appeared in Gothic churches and allowed for buildings to be built much taller than was previously thought to be possible. Another major invention from the 1100s that changed the world was the pintle and, pintle and gudgeon stern-mounted rudders, which was a big upgrade for medieval ships. Prior to the invention of these rudders, large ships were maneuvered using simple oars or simple quarter rudders. These new rudders uh, and other in innovations in navigation would be necessary pre precursors for the age of discovery that began in the 1400s and would lead to centuries of European colonialism. How stoked were the first sailors to get those new rudders? I wonder if it's like now when people get a new iPhone. Sometimes people who do that, they feel superior to people with older phones. Like did sailors back then with new rudders treat other sailors like people still using flip phones today? Sup, bro? You see my new boat? Check out that rudder, son. Nice. You got to get one of those new rudders, bruh. Game changer. I can't even imagine not having it now. Later, bruh. I'm off for some smooth sailing. Nice. Uh, in the 13th century, more brightness. Two fathers of the scientific method emerged, Thomas Aquinas and Robert Grostest. Uh, Thomas Aquinas interested in using philosophy to prove the existence of God. He, his work would influence Roman Catholic doctrine for centuries and was adopted as the official philosophy of the church in 1917. St. Thomas believed that the existence of God can be proven in five ways, mainly by one, observing movement in the world as proof of God, the immovable mover, two, observing cause and effect and identifying God as the cause of everything, three, concluding that the impermanent nature of beings proves the existence of a necessary being God who originates only from within himself, four, noticing varying levels of human perfection and determining that a supreme perfect being must therefore exist, and five, knowing that natural beings could not have intelligence without it being granted to them by God. Uh, subsequent to defending people's ability to naturally perceive proof of God, Thomas also tackled the challenge of protecting God's image as an all-powerful being. Uh, another medieval thinker, Robert Grostest, 
uh, founded the Oxford Franciscan School and began to promote the dualistic scientific method first proposed by Aristotle. All right, so we're getting some thinkers. His idea of resolution and composition involved experimentation and prediction. He firmly believed that observation should be used to propose a universal law, and this universal law should be used to predict outcomes. One of Grosseteste's pupils, a 13th century Franciscan friar named Roger Bacon, would take things even further science-wise. He took the work of Grosseteste, Aristotle, and Islamic alchemists and used it to propose the idea of induction as the cornerstone of, cornerstone of uh, empiricism. He described the method of observation, prediction, and experimentation, also adding that results should be independently verified. The early scientist uh, should document his results and find details so that others might repeat the experiment. All of these things are now known as a scientific method. So pretty important Dark Ages advancement there. Uh, both Bacon and Grosseteste studied optics. Also, uh, Bacon devised a plan for creating a telescope. Although there was no evidence to suggest he actually built one, uh, Galileo would be the first to do that. Uh, Bacon, also the first European to describe the process for making gunpowder in detail. Sure, the Chinese were still way ahead of Europe, but Europe figured it out. Uh, Bacon, also the first person to reference definitively the technology of eyeglasses during this, uh, this time. This invention would significantly improve the quality of life for the people who could afford them. 1206 CE, Genghis Khan becomes ruler of the Mongols. Uh, we did a suck on this giant of history as well, episode 196. Uh, the Khan's original name was Temujin, and he united the various nomadic tribes in Mongolia and began a series of conquests, big-time conquests, that would stretch across Asia and into parts of Europe. 1209 CE, time for some witch hunts. Uh, Pope Innocent III launched another crusade into southern France. He was rooting out a group of heretics, what's now called the Albigensian Crusade. Albigensian uh, Crusade, excuse me. And it was a war that lasted 20 years and only ended when an inquisition was established to finish the work they'd started. According to the University of Kansas Medieval, or according, according to, <laughs> this, this is this whole suck, it's like a tongue twister for me. According to University of Kansas Medieval History Professor Lynn Harry Nelson, uh, the Cathari were a particularly heretical group under the more general umbrella of the Albigensians. And while they all believed in the duality of God, a good one versus an evil one, the Cathari practiced that the Catholic Church preached that the Catholic Church itself was pretty fucking shady. And to be fair, you know, to them it was pretty shady during the Dark Ages. Uh, they believed that the same people who crucified Christ had established the Catholic Church uh, were now playing the worst kind of cosmic joke on everybody by convincing them to worship the very instrument they'd used to kill Christ, the crucifix. Interesting thought. Uh, this crusade turned into a full-scale military conflict because the Catholic Church was not about to stand for that sort of talk. According to Dr. Stephen Halliser from Northern Illinois University, uh, when the crusaders took Toulouse, Commander Simone de Montfort came up with a horrible solution to this horrible problem. When his officers admitted they didn't know who the heretics were and who the innocent were, his response was, kill them all, the devil will know his own. Thousands then died. Uh, amen, I guess. Uh, terrible. Also in the 13th century, the first blast furnaces appear in Europe. Uh, China probably been using blast furnaces as early as the first century CE, but more than, and then more than a thousand years later, this is a big deal for Europe. Uh, the oldest European examples built in Switzerland, Germany, possibly Sweden. Uh, 1215 CE, one of the most important documents to come out of the Dark Ages is written. The Magna Carta, also known as the Great Charter, uh, was a charter or contract agreed to by King John of England and his rebellious barons. It was the first, uh, you know, uh, kind of document to put legal limits on the powers of monarchs and the first time that a king had agreed or had to agree to be subject of the law like everyone else. And how crazy is that? Prior to this, the king, other than being excommunicated by the pope, uh, really couldn't get into any legal trouble. Uh, dude could eat a baby in front of his nobles and then just be like, fuck, are you going to do about it? 
Was I supposed to do that tasty ass baby? Not eat it? Uh, although nearly a third of the text was deleted or substantially rewritten within 10 years, and although almost all the clauses have been repealed in modern times, the Magna Carta still remains a cornerstone of the British Constitution. Uh, more medieval craziness kicks off in 1232 CE. That year, Pope Gregory IX kicks off a smear campaign against black cats. You heard me. He wages a war against kitty cats. This is peak Dark Ages. He writes Vox and Rama, which was supposedly an expose on the secrets activities, and rituals of a cult of witches in northern Germany. In it, he says these witches summon a black cat that appears to be kissed and adored by their worshipers. He says that witches even kiss the cat's hind parts. Uh-huh. Yeah, the Pope, in all seriousness, writes a treatise uh, talking about German witch women who summon black cats and then kiss their buttholes. And cat hunters come out in full force. They're like, fuck yeah, let's get those cats. Get those devil, get those devil cats, guys. Come on, Hurry. Uh, so many people kill cats that cat populations drop to near extinction levels in many places. And then th this will backfire tremendously years later because with way less cats, rat and mice populations explode, which then helps the plague spread. Uh, Bo Jangles right now is the happiest I've ever seen him. He, he just said that this suck just became his favorite one. Uh, February 13th, 1258, uh, one of the bloodiest days in the history of mankind. Uh, the blood was not spilled in Europe, but it was spilled near Europe. And many of those who died had fought Europeans for years. Uh, on this day, the uh, Hulagu, uh, Hulagu Khan's Mongol army entered Baghdad after a 12-day siege. The siege of Baghdad would bring Islam's golden age to a swift end. In the 13th century, Baghdad was not just the center of the Islamic world. It was, without a doubt, one of the greatest cities on earth, perhaps the greatest city at its time. Between 1.2, 2 million people lived there. Since 751 CE, it had been the capital of the Abbasid Caliphate center of the Islamic empire. The famous house of wisdom we mentioned earlier was located there, a massive center of learning with a vast array of scholars, both Islamic and non-Islamic, working together to translate all of the world's wisdom and knowledge. Because of this emphasis on learning and knowledge, scholars of all races, religions, and nationalities were welcome in Baghdad. They were paid handsomely for their contributions to an ever-expanding store of knowledge uh, in areas as diverse as astronomy, mathematics, science, philosophy, medicine, and chemistry. The Mongol force that would take over Baghdad was comprised of between 100,000 and 150,000 soldiers. It was the largest Mongol army to have ever existed. It was also supplemented by 20,000 Christian troops from Armenia and Antioch, along with 1,000 Chinese artillery engineers and auxiliary contingents of Persian and Turkish soldiers. Mongol troops began their siege of Baghdad on January 29th, and by February 5th, most of the city's defenses had been destroyed. It was obvious the Mongols would soon take the city. After the city officially surrendered on February 10th, the Mongol troops enter the city three days later and those they don't then kill are taken as slaves. Palaces, mosques, churches, hospitals, and the city's 36 public libraries are smashed to pieces and burned to the ground. 36 libraries, fucking Mongols. The House of Wisdom, with its centuries of knowledge from all cultures across the planet, is raised and completely destroyed the house's collection of books, perhaps the, perhaps the largest collection of the books in the world at that time, maybe the largest collection of books ever in the world up until that time, destroyed. Uh, the books are ripped apart, thrown into the Tigris River, which was said to have run black from the ink. Nice work, you dumb fucks. Way to destroy priceless and irre irreplaceable documents. Uh, another story to cover for our fake news team. Hello and welcome back to Roman Nightly News. I'm Sensationalist Maximus and oh my Jupiter. Do I have yet another breaking story for you? This just in. The Mongols have sacked Baghdad, and we're hearing that they have destroyed their books. All of them. 
More on this developing story from our Somehow Still Alive correspondent on the street, time-traveling Karen. Karen, what can you tell us? Fucking what, Maximus? These assholes are dumping books into the river, I swear to God, like all of them. Not okay. Hey, you, guy with blood on him and sack full of ears. What do you think you're doing, Mongol? I want to work with your manager. Don't you shush me. I, I, I wanted to read some of those books, you asshole. Did you even speak English? Oh my God, where's your manager? Hey, what are you doing with that arrow? Hey, put that down. Uh, looks like Karen has just been shot with an arrow. Be sure to check back in later as we continue to cover this Roman nightly news developing story. More news every hour on the hour. I told you it was going to be a weird episode. Uh, the Tigris was not only uh, full of destroyed books now, but also with the uh, bodies of the dead. Estimates state that 90,000 to a million people, up to a million people, massacred when the Mongols entered the city. Uh, after this, the Muslim world spiraled into a long period of disunity and decline, ending the Abbasid dynasty in the bloodiest way possible. Uh, from April 4th to May 18th, 1291, the siege of Acre ends Europe's crusading ambitions. Maybe a little minor crusades after this, but, you know, the, the big ones are over now. Acre had always been the most important Christian-held port in the Middle East, but when it finally fell to the armies of uh, Mamluk Sultan Khalil, the Christians are forced to flee for good and seek refuge on Cyprus. The fall of Acre is the final event in the European, you know, crusade, the, the major portion of them. Uh, 315 CE, things get worse for Europe. From 315 to 317, the Great Famine depletes food stocks across the continent, plunges Europe into chaos. It had rained almost constantly throughout the summer and fall of 1314, and then again through most of 1315 and 1316. Rained so much that crops rotted in the ground, harvests failed, livestock drowned or starved. Food stocks depleted and the price of food soared. The Great Famine is reported to have claimed over 5% of the British population. Uh, it was even worse in mainland Europe. The shortage of crops pushed up prices of everyday necessities like vegetables, wheat, uh, barley, oats, uh, Sega Genesis's, uh, ant farms, lava lamps, you know, salt, uh, that kind of stuff. Salt, the only way at that time to cure and preserve meat was difficult to obtain because it was harder to extract through evaporation and wet weather. So it got a lot more expensive. Uh, prices on ant farms, lava lamps, and Segas uh, didn't actually rise because, you know, that's nonsense. But the situation got worse and worse as the rain continued to fall. It was reported that there was even no bread in St. Albans for the king and his court when they stopped off there on the 10th of August, 1315. No bread for the king. That's what you know shit's bad. Uh, things were particularly bad in the north of England and especially in Northumbria, where people were already struggling due to looting by Scottish raiders. Uh, the people who lived there ended up resorting to eating dogs and horses. Uh, Bojangles just said this is no longer his favorite episode. Uh, things got so bad in the winter of 1315 to 1316 that the peasants ate the seed grain they had stored for planting the following spring. Uh, you can probably guess that did not help matters. Uh, by 1316, people had gotten so desperate, they begged, stole, murdered, you know, cannibalism in some parts. It was anarchy. Parents who could no longer feed their families abandoned their kids to fend for themselves. It's thought that the fairy tale of Hansel and Gretel may have originated from these atrocities. Uh, as the cold, wet weather continued, the famine reached its height in the spring of 1317. Finally, weather patterns returned to normal, but it wasn't until 1322 that the food uh, supply com recovered completely. No one really knows how many died. Some think Europe lost around 10% of its total population to starvation in just three years. Millions are thought to have died. In uh, numerous villages, 25% or more of the population starved to death. Uh, 1320, the Italian poet Dante, uh, Dante uh, Alighieri, Dante Alighieri uh, completes the Divine Comedy. Why does it help that you throw your hand up, at least for me, if I want to do an Italian word? Dante Alighieri! You know? But if I try and just say it normally, it doesn't come out. I don't know what I'm talking about right now. Anyway, the Divine Comedy, considered to be one of the greatest works in literary history, arguably the single greatest work of the Dark Ages, it's divided into three major sections, Inferno, Purgatorio, and Paradiso. 
Infernal production. <laughs> I'll stop. Uh, the narrative traces uh, the journey of Dante from darkness and error to the revelation of the divine light, culminating in seeing God. In the epic poem, Dante is guided by the Roman poet Virgil, who represents the epitome of human knowledge from the dark wood to the descending circles of the pit of hell. Passing Lucifer at the pit's bottom, at the dead center of the world, Dante and Virgil emerge on the beach of the island mountain of Purgatory. At the summit of Purgatory, where repentant sinners are purged of their sins, Virgil departs, having led Dante as far as human knowledge is able uh, to go to the threshold of paradise. There, Dante is met by Beatrice, embodying the knowledge of divine mysteries bestowed by grace, who leads him through the successive ascending levels of heaven into the Empyrean, the highest level of heaven, where he's allowed to glimpse for a moment the glory of God. Uh, and he hears the music that you can only hear at that highest level, which is, uh, let me play that for you really quick. No. Uh, <laughs> can you imagine? You make it into some crazy, weird place where you actually do get to go up to heaven and you're like, oh man, where's those harps at? And he's like, nah, man, fuck that shit. Listen to this. That's, that's what I'm doing up here. Uh, more than the authors of the Bible itself, um, yeah, in this highest level, sorry, in this highest level, I got distracted by my own nonsense there. Uh, he's allowed to glimpse for a moment the glory of God, is what it says in the book. And then more than the authors of the Bible itself, Dante actually provided the world with its uh, vision of hell. This vision later painted by Botticelli, uh, Blake, Delacroix, Dolly. Uh, most modern Christian depictions of hell actually come from this book, not from the Bible. I find that interesting. Uh, the Bible, for example, never states that the devil will reign over hell. Uh, Dante did. Things get worse for Europe with the beginning of the Hundred Years' War in 1337. It will last an, until 1339. Uh, JK, that would make no sense if it was just two years long. It would actually last for over 100 years, with intermittent fighting lasting all the way until 1453. The long conflict pitted the kings and kingdoms of France and England against one another. Two factors lay at the origin of this conflict. First, the status of the Duchy of Aquitaine. Though it belonged to kings of England, it remained a fief of the French crown, and the kings of England wanted independent possession of their land across the channel. Uh, the second factor involves succession lineage for the French crown. As the closest relatives of the last direct Capetian king, Charles IV, who had died in 1328, the kings of England actually had the best claim for the crown of France. And that did not sit well with people who were, uh, you know, in France who thought they had uh, a bead on the throne. While England had just a, a, you know, a just claim for the crown, France had a military advantage when it came to not letting them have that. Uh, France was the most populous and powerful state in Western Europe with a military to match England, smaller, sparsely populated, comparatively, uh, less troops. But the English army was well-disciplined and they successfully used their longbows to stop cavalry charges. They repeatedly won battles against much larger French forces. Uh, but then the end of the conflict died out when the English finally recognized that despite winning some battles, the French troops overall were just too strong to be directly confronted and beaten. And France would remain the dominant state of Western Europe. Uh, the year 1347 kicked off one of the deadliest events in Europe, the spread of the Black Death or the Black Plague, we have a suck on this one, suck 125, so we won't go into depth here. Uh, one of the largest pandemics in human history, ravaging through Eurasia, killing as many as 200 million people. 200 million. In medieval England alone, the plague killed one and a half million people out of an estimated total of four million people between just 1348 and 1350. That's fucking insane. Uh, the Black Death also killed much of the intellectual progress that had been made during the Middle Ages, unfortunately. It set science and discovery back and most knowledge gained would not reemerge until after the Dark Ages and when the Renaissance kicked off. Uh, across the world, the Ming Dynasty overthrows the Mongol Empire's great uh, Wan Dynasty and deposes Mongol rule in 1368. The new Ming Dynasty will rule until 1644. During the prosperous Ming Dynasty, Chinese popul China's population will more than double. They'll expand trade, establish cultural ties with the West. 
as well as make advances in drama, literature, and world-renowned porcelain. 1439, the printing press is invented. The first European to use movable type, Johann Gutenberg, a German craftsman and inventor, will usher in a revolution in the creation of books and the spread of information. And that spread will help bring the Dark Ages to a close. Uh, Elements of Gutenberg's invention are thought to have included a metal alloy that could melt readily and cool quickly to form durable, reusable type, an oil-based ink that could be made sufficiently thick to adhere well to metal type and transfer well to vellum or paper, and a new press likely adapted from those used in producing wine, oil, or paper for applying firm, even pressure to printing surfaces. Now, with this new way of printing, books can be made quickly and cheaper uh, than they were before, much much more quickly and cheaper. 1452 CE, more books uh, lighting humanity out of the Dark Ages emerged. The Library of Malatesta Novella in Cessna, Italy is opened, uh, or Cessina, Italy. Uh, today, it's considered to be one of the first ever public libraries in the world. Uh, the first in Europe since the Roman Empire. The building was owned by the city commune and allowed for readers to freely make use of its collection. A team of librarians organized a two-decade-long effort to transcribe books they found elsewhere in Europe and return to Cecina uh, with their contents. Six or seven Nordic writers were charged with copying the books into Gothic or semi-Gothic script, others tasked to illustrate and bind them. The library holdings totaling 343 manuscripts include legal, medical, scientific, literary, theological, and philosophical works, as well as 14 Greek codices and seven Hebrew ones. A good step to get out of the Dark Ages. May 29th, 1453, Constantinople falls to the Ottoman Empire. The dwindling Byzantine Empire comes to an end when the Ottomans breach Constantinople's ancient walls after besieging the city for 55 days. The Ottoman Turks extend their control over virtually all of the Balkans now and most of Anatolia and had already conquered several Byzantine cities west of Constantinople in the second half of the 1300s. Between 60,000 and 80,000 Ottoman soldiers lay siege to the city, accompanied by 69 cannons. An Ottoman fleet of warships also hammered the city's walls with its cannons. With most of Constantinople secure, or when most of it is secure, uh, Mehmed, the leader of the Ottomans, rides through the streets of the city to the great cathedral of uh, Hagia Sophia, largest in all of Christendom, and converts it into a mosque. He stops to pray, then demands that all further looting cease immediately. The sultan thus completes his conquest of the Byzantine capital. Uh, this establishes the Ottomans as a major international power for the next several centuries, and it also marks the end, uh, according to most historians, for the, the Middle Ages. And that will take us out of today's uh, information-laden time-suck timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. Uh, whew. Uh, covered a lot of information in about two hours there. Uh, hail Nimrod. <laughs> I know might have felt a little bit clunky at times, but I, uh, I assure you, actually, uh, Zach worked more than usual by far on that one. The script keeper, uh, uh, Sophie, worked more than usual, and I also worked more than usual. To try and get, ah, what information should we put in this suck? So much you can pick from. Uh, did we miss a lot of big Dark Ages events? For sure. Uh, did we really miss out on a lot of cool shit that happened around the world during the Middle Ages? Of course. Again, you could you could dedicate an entire podcast that could run for years on just the Dark Ages. Uh, the Dark Ages only really happened in Europe and around uh, Europe and mostly, you know, in Western Europe. And Western Europe, the collapse of Rome led to huge socioeconomic upheaval, barbarian raids, and the return of a rural culture. Uh, Europe became dark due to the loss of Rome's classical knowledge and lack of mobility under medieval feudalism that meant that life for the average person was more brutal, taxing, and rep- repressive than it had been before. Also, you know, stinkier, dirtier. Uh, however, the entire medieval period was not completely backwards. Uh, medieval society did see some important scientific developments, including the very important development 
of the scientific method itself. The Middle Ages also saw the growth of Europe's first universities. At the end of the Tunnel of the Dark Ages was the light of the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, a reborn respect for non-theological learning that would usher us into the modern era. Following the Middle Ages and lasting until the 17th century, the Renaissance promoted a rediscovery of classical philosophy, literature, and art. Enlightenment thinkers in Britain, France, and elsewhere throughout Europe would soon question traditional authority like most of those living in the Dark Ages had not, could not, without you know, risking their lives. They embraced the notion that humanity could be improved through rational change. The Enlightenment produced numerous books, essays, inventions, scientific discoveries, laws, revolutions. Europe became more secular. Thanks to the Protestant Reformation, the power of the papacy was greatly diminished. More voices could speak out against the church and not lose their heads. Science could be pursued without leading to being burned alive for being a heretic. And now because we've stepped out of the dark and into the light, uh, at least more light, you know, we have the ability to do stuff like make or listen to a highly irreverent podcast like this. We can uh, wipe our asses with toilet paper or use bidets instead of moss and leaves and just literal shitholes. We can wash our hands when we're done. You know, we don't have to worry about elves fucking with our horses anymore. We can take hot showers with soap every day, every day if we want, or baths or both. You can take three baths and you can take four hot showers if you want. I like it. I'm in favor of no longer living in the dark ages. Hail Nimrod and hail progress. Time now for today's top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, the dark ages began with the fall of the Western Roman Empire in 476 CE. And it lasted roughly until the rest of Rome fell with the Ottoman takeover of Constantinople in 1453. And in between those years, a lot of serfs led a lot of really shitty lives. Number two, in 897 CE, a pope uh, put the previous pope on trial when the dude had already been dead for seven months. That actually happened. Number three, the Chinese were way ahead of Europeans during the Dark Ages in nearly every way. And things like paper currency, gunpowder, the printing press, they were hundreds of years ahead. Gotta suck on ancient China one of these days. Number four, we can thank the Arabic scholars and philosophers for saving the works of the Greek thinkers like Plato, Socrates, Aristotle. While the Catholic Church initially sought to destroy these important pieces of human thought, the Arabs protected them and once again brought them to Western Europe. And number five, something new. Let's talk about torture. Uh, torture was commonplace as a form of punishment throughout Europe in the Middle Ages, in the Dark Ages. It was mostly used to either extract or force victims into confessing to a crime by either church or secular authorities, regardless of whether or not someone was actually guilty or innocent of the crime. And of course, if enemy soldiers got a hold of you, they might torture you as well. During our suck on the Spanish Inquisition in April of 2018, we covered some of the more horrific torture techniques used at the end of the Middle Ages. We discussed starvation, foot roasting, the rack, the knee splitter, Jupiter's twist, the Spanish donkey, Newton's orbs, the Judas cradle, and more. Uh, and some of those things we discussed were actually real things. Uh, what else did medieval sadists use to treat peasants like modern serial killers treat their victims today? Here are three of the worst medieval torture devices we did not previously cover. There was the breast ripper, also known as the iron spider, or just as the spider uh, lady meat sacks. Uh, might want to hold your tits for this one. Uh, these devices were used on women who were accused of adultery, self-abortion, uh, heresy, or heresy, uh, blasphemy, or accused of being witches, also used for interrogations. These devices, often heated during torture for extra fun, contain four claws. It's almost like a giant tong, but like with four claws, little two claws on each side of the tong. Uh, and it was used to slowly and painfully literally rip off someone's breast. The instrument would be latched onto a single breast of the woman being tortured. If she somehow didn't die from having her breast just violently ripped off, 
Uh, she'd be, you know, pretty disfigured for the rest of her life. Uh, there was a variation of this device known as the iron spider. It would have been attached to the wall and the woman's breast would have been fixed onto the claws of the tool and the victim then pulled from the wall. So kind of just a reverse, tearing off her breast that way. Another variant of this included spiked bars affixed slightly away from the wall that grabbed both breasts. The victim would then be pulled along the bars until both of her breasts were ripped off. So fucking horrific. Actually happened to people. Next up, the pair of anguish. I, I, I want to say this one might be worse. I don't know how you get worse than that last one, but it might be. This heinous contraption, also called the choke pair, for reasons that we're going to get into in a moment. Uh, this painful metal fruit-shaped device was a popular way to torture women who were accused of facilitating a miscarriage, also used to punish liars, blasphemers, homosexuals. Really, that just kind of opens up to they could just use it to torture whoever they wanted to. Uh, the device was inserted into one of the prisoner's orifices, the vagina for women, the anus for homosexuals, the mouth for liars and blasphemers, uh, why it's known as the choke pair as well. And this thing featured four metal leaves that would slowly, so it's like shaped like a pear, you know, like like a picture of pear, you know, this a uh, little smaller on one end than the other. And on the small end, there was these four metal leaves that were folded down at first. And then coming out of the back of this object, there was a, a, a little device that you could screw. And as it was screwed by the torturer, uh, the more this thing would rip your insides apart because the leaves would slowly unfold. So you had these metal leaves that would slowly unfold inside of you and just tear you apart. Uh, it rarely caused death, often followed by other torture methods. Uh, last one here, the simplest and I, and I think the most brutal, actually, just called the rat torture. No fancy device needed. You just need a large rat and, and a heavy metal pot to heat. A prisoner would be completely restrained, tied to the ground or some other horizontal surface for this to work, maybe on a table. They'd have to lay face up. A rat would then be placed on the victim's stomach covered by a metallic container, you know, some big metal pot that would be gradually heated, hotter and hotter. And the hotter this container got, the more frantically the rat would try to look for a way out, which inevitably would mean that it would try and just fucking burrow its way through the victim's body. It would dig into the body and it apparently could take hours to die this way. It's a painful, gruesome death as the rat clawed its way into your intestines and other organs. Yee! These are the things people did to uh, uh, literally get medieval on uh, people's asses back then. So you're welcome for those visuals. I'm sure none of you will have nightmares. Uh, thank God we have some great Time Sucker updates today to do a little palate cleanse and we don't have to end the episode on that terror. Time Suck Top 5 Takeaways. Uh, the Dark Ages has been sucked. Uh, biggest, big episode this week. I uh, hope you enjoyed it. Uh, thank you to the Bad Magic Productions team for all the help in making Time Suck every week. Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins. Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley, the script keeper, Zach Flannery. Sophie Fax, Sorceress Evans, Bit Elixir, Logan the Art Warlock. Uh, um, you know, running badmagicmerch.com and the socials. Thanks to all those who've joined the Cult of the Curious private Facebook group. Over 23,000 members now who continue to make Time Suck a, a community more than a podcast. Uh, thank you to Liz Hernandez and her all-seeing eyes running the Cult of the Curious Facebook page. Liz also helping with the socials now. Uh, we love Liz. Uh, thanks to Beefsteak and the Mod Squad running our Discord channel. Uh, not sure who won round five that just ended, but when I recorded this episode, Bodie 210 was in the lead with 7,700 7, points. Uh, round six starts the day this suck drops. So Bodie might be getting that trophy. Uh, next week, we head across the Atlantic to Liberia to suck on Joshua Bly, a.k.a. General Butt Naked. I think this is going to be <laughs> such a fascinating tale. 
During the first Liberian civil war, which lasted from 1989 to 1996, rival militias took to the streets, fighting over diamond fields and gold mines. The commanders, the warlords of these militias adopted insane names like Chuck Norris, One Foot Devil, General Mosquito, his nemesis, General Mosquito Spray. Uh, none were as feared as General Butt Naked, leading an army of children who were, who were sustained on a diet of cocaine and slasher flicks. <laughs> this is uh, true. General Butt, it's not funny, but it's just so absurd. General Butt Naked regularly sacrificed human beings, cannibalized them, terrorized people across Liberia. He believed that it would satiate his tribal god and give him success on the battlefield. He would later claim that he had been uh, a tribal priest since the age of 11, indoctrinated into some kind of cultish organization that made him grow into a bloodthirsty and power-hungry dude. Anthropologists these days doubt that this organization actually exists. I think he probably is lying about it. Like a lot of General Butt Naked story, it's hard to separate the insanity of what he says about himself with the insanity of what he actually did. Why was he called General Butt Naked? You can probably guess. He fought naked. Uh, Joshua Bly believed that fighting naked made him, made him immune to bullets. You can Google pictures of him, but you might not want to do it at work or in a public space. Uh, General Butt Naked alive today and the direction his life has recently taken might surprise you. Uh, what's he up to? What strange and horrifying things did he do during the Liberian Civil War? Will he ever face justice for his war crimes? What about the child soldiers he led? What are they up to? Going to have to tune in next week to find out. And now let's head on over to a to a big old time sucker updates. Updates. Get your time sucker updates. First first update we're going to have some laughs. Uh Super Mailman Meat Sack Brian Oh boy. Brian Lufstedt? Maybe. Uh, uh, Brian shares an uncomfortable moment with us. He writes, Dear Lord Suckmaster Motherfucking Cult Leader of Nimrod Mofo Cummins. Uh, I'm writing in due to the awkwardness the sex suck caused. I'm a mailman with bone conduction headphones that usually sound like mumbled nonsense. They can't be made out to anyone but me. But on my Friday coverage, I helped out a blind woman who I bring the mail to directly uh, to her apartment down the hall. She heard the pony play part of the podcast due to her superhuman hearing. And then later asked the regular mailman if I fuck ponies. <laughs> Thank you for the workplace shame and keep on sucking. P.S. I hope you make a full recovery from COVID. Uh, thank you, Brian. I-, I love that she actually asked the regular mailman later if you're a literal pony fucker. <laughs> and that the mailman then talked to you about it. How wonderfully uncomfortable uh, for all of you. Uh, hope you have to deliver mail again to her soon. Hope it's deliciously awkward. I think uh, if you deliver more mail to her uh, as you leave, you should just let out a little like, Nee! you know, as you walk away or something. Uh, thanks for the well wishes. All better on the COVID front, I think. My brain may be a little foggier than normal. I don't know. It's hard to say. It may just normally be foggy. Uh, speaking of COVID, as cases spike around the U.S., frontline sucker Craig Albrecht and his team write in with an important message. He writes, Dear Sir Suckmaster Esquire, I wanted to drop you a note. Me and my team are frontliners on this crazy thing called COVID-19. Our job is to assist cardiologists, uh, cardiothoracic surgeons, and ICU nurses. Help them implant and monitor the world's smallest heart pumps. Impella is the name of your board. Anywho, we are the people that you and your family meet on the very worst day of your lives. As nurses and radiology techs, we see the best and worst sides of this terrible virus, uh, let alone all of the other patients with heart problems not compounded by COVID. Some days are fantastic. Others are absolutely horrible. The matriarch or patriarch or both of entire families can find can be fine one minute and be on life support the next. In these cases, chances of walking out of the hospital are slim. As you can imagine, those cases are not the ones that we hate. Me and my team use time suck to relieve the pressures, or are, are the ones, are the ones. That was weird. That was a terrible phrasing. 
Those cases are the ones that we hate. My, uh, me and my team use Time Suck to relieve the pressures that are put on us day in and day out. The best days are when a mother, uh, father, or grandparent, and yes, sometimes young people can recover and go home. The spin you put on everything makes us laugh, gives us something to look forward to and laugh about. Whiskey, laudanum, saw, mother. <laughs> mother, oofta, oofta. Uh, thank you, thank you, thank you for making us laugh and helping us remove our minds from reality for a few minutes. The reason for my email is this. Please, 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 time suckers, don't wait to seek care in the realm of fucked upness that is COVID. We've had way too many people who have waited too long to seek medical attention because they're afraid of hospitals and it's too late. By the time that we see them, most of the time, uh, there's nothing else the doctors and nurses can do to save them. Seek help. Hospitals are safe. Get the damn vaccine when it's available. Please socially distance, wear a mask, or else you could be seen my face fully PPE'd up, of course, on the worst day of your life. And I will have a bottle of whiskey, a bottle of laudanum, and the rustiest saw I can find. Hail Lucifina, praise be to Triple M. Scratchable jangles behind the ear every time he bites the ass of a communist. Give the queen her due in magic crystals. Not sorry about the length. Giggity. Your friends on the front, Craig Albrecht, Brandon Eason, Craig uh, Plappert, and Jamie Herndon. Uh, well, thank you, Craig, and thanks, Brandon, other Craig, and Jamie. Keep fighting the good fight. Uh, good advice about not waiting too long before you get help. Yeah, at least call a doctor or your clinic and report your symptoms. You know, Don't try and tough guy or tough gallet. I never went in, but only because my symptoms were, were just not that bad. I never worried about my, my breathing. Never had my fever spiked, anything that was alarming. Uh, never got dehydrated. So glad the suck can provide uh, you with some distraction while you're doing all, all that very important work. Uh, thank you. Now for some comedy, some more comedy, dark comedy related to last week's truck stop killer coming from hilarious sucker Jessica who writes, kink shame. One of my buddies in college was real into cock and ball torture. Him and another friend of mine were wrapping up a session. Uh, she went to give him one last goodbye kick right when he was zipping up his zipper. Oh. Flash forward to the ER and some bloody swollen balls. Yikes. He spent the next couple of weeks in skirts. Only time I kink shamed him was a week later when he was considering asking her for some, quote, healing slaps. I slapped him in the face, told him to stop thinking with his bloody dick and focused on healing himself. Also, that is when I learned he loved getting slapped in the face. Hey, Lucifina, question mark. Uh, wow, Jessica. I cringe laughed so hard when I first read this. First, I love that you referred to this guy getting kicked in the balls as a session, like he's meeting with a fucking personal trainer or something. <laughs> just going in for a little session, just get my balls worked over. Uh, <laughs> and I love the term healing slaps. What the fuck? Uh, hope you're out there having some healthy BDSM sex with some healthy slaps and that no one's taking their bloody swollen balls to the ER anymore. Hail is Uh Now for a very intense message uh, with someone with a much darker connection to last week's truck stop killer. Uh, super sucker Ethan writes, Dan, I was surprised to look up this week's time suck. I wasn't sure how I would react to hearing about Doug's murder. Your presentation was very respectful of the victims. I learned quite a bit about that sicko. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I was texting a friend from college. She lived in Hawaii in the 80s, and I lived in Seattle before jo joining the Army. I was telling her about Tony Hawk's interview on Joe Rogan. I met Hawk's dad at some competitions, got to hang out with Hisoy and Stephen Stedham one night. Mentioned to Tracy tonight that two guys in our group went pro. I told her how Doug was this really gentle guy who was a freestyle skater, and Doug is one of the victims of the truck stop killer. If you're curious here, probably should have said that earlier. Uh, Doug was this really gentle guy who was a freestyle skater who was just as amazing as any freestyle skater. Being older, he was our driver. We would all hang out around Seattle late into the mornings on Saturdays and Sundays, just skating. No drugs, no alcohol. Fudge your brain. Some of the pros didn't care, but we did. He would buy donuts for us. Super nice guy. Truly a sweet man. At one point, he quit skating because he told me he heard the voice of God telling him to stop spending so much time skating. He eventually went back, but it was a little weird. 
Anyway, I hadn't looked up Doug for years. I told Tracy that Doug had perfected being a human being. He treated us as well as a group of rowdy teens. It was amazing to watch him on his board. I was a freestyler too, but he was on a whole different level of incredible. And he never used profanity. We did, but not Doug. I never told us not to. Some of us dialed it back when he was around. So I did what I should not have done for a guy who impacted me so strongly in high school. I searched for him and I found this and then he found the, the find a grave memorial link uh, to Douglas Scott Zikowski Zikowski uh, being killed by the truck stop killer. Then he writes, fuck me. I cried tonight. Right now, even he was the perfect human. The truck stop killer murdered one of the most amazing people I've ever known. Doug is even mentioned on that asshole's Wikipedia page. Even crazier, I remember talking to Doug about the Green River Killer. We all lived in the Des Moines, Kent area of Washington at that time. I shit you not, Gary Ridgway's last known address was across Highway 99 from my house by the theater at 232nd Street in Des Moines. Ridgway went to Taiyi High School, where my girlfriend went. This has nothing to do with this asshole who killed Doug, but it's weird that this topic came up a lot uh, where we lived since Ridgway was active when looking back. We were out late in the same areas where Ridgeway trolled. Is it possible that we saw that douchebag at some point? Did he visit the drive-in where I worked? Anyways, I needed to share this with someone. Doug was killed when I was in the army in Texas. He was hitchhiking not far from me. If I would have known, I would have taken leave or a pass to take him wherever he and his wife had needed to go. I respected him so much, Ethan. Holy shit, Ethan. Uh, what a terrible connection to last week's episode. So sorry about your friend. Uh, I can only imagine how much you must fucking hate uh, Robert Ben Rhodes. And what a strange connection to this Green River killer as well. Uh, thank you for sharing Doug's story, uh, reminding us he was, you know, uh, much more than a faceless victim. Uh, you know, I had no idea he was an accomplished skateboarder. Hope this is the only connection of its kind the suck has in store for you going forward. Rest in peace, Doug Siskowski. You sounded like you were uh, one hell of a meat sack. Uh, now for another crazy connection with the Nexium cult suck uh, this time before leaving uh, with some humor. Cult of the Curious member Christy writes, I love this message. Hello, Sir Cummins, the benevolent leader of the Curious and Bitch Boy of Lucifina. Fair. My name is Christy. I'm a longtime fan of all that you do. I started with your stand-up, became quickly addicted, and have dragged my husband, 18-year-old daughter, and older brother down the deplorable time suck and scared to death road. Just a bunch of creepers over here. This email is a month overdue, but I didn't. Uh, but I don't tend to listen to the podcast in order. So I just recently listened to the Nexium suck. It immediately hit home in a way no other suck has before, as my mom was 100% brainwashed and deeply submerged in the cult of Amway. I grew up in Michigan, so both my parents became eager participants in this absolute garbage back in the 70s before I was born. My dad was out by the early 80s after my parents got divorced, but my mom spent 40 plus years with, her ta with their talent so deep in her soul that if Amway ever decides to take the religious route, my mom will be christened a martyred saint that all peasants must pray to to get to the all-knowing God of Amway. My three other siblings and I had a very difficult upbringing and much of it was due to the influence of Amway and its poison in our lives. Now, to be fair, not 100% 100 of it can be chalked up to the great scheme that is a pyramid. Uh, as an adult, I truly believe that while my mom loved us dearly and did the absolute best that she could, she was also very mentally ill in a number of ways that I have experienced firsthand, but I'm not qualified to diagnose. That being said, I do believe that such schemes target individuals because within them uh, is, is the need to be a perfect unwavering follower, which my mom was until the day she died. Growing up, we lived in poverty because my mom would not get a job that would take anything away from her Amway destiny. She often sold our toys, TVs, furniture, food stamps, etc., to fund the various retreats that other members would tell her were absolutely vital for her success. I know they told her because I heard them tell her. 
Looking back, it is beyond infuriating that another adult would sit next to a struggling woman in her Section 8 housing with her four small children running around with nothing and tell her these that these weekends at the Grand Plaza Hotel in Lansing were more important than anything else, that she could not rise up in the ranks without them and ultimately would fail. My mom was very rarely home while she was out building her business, which left us home to our own devices. I will not get into all of that as we are not here to dedicate an entire time suck to my upbringing. What I'll say is there were some unfortunate events that my siblings and myself have lived with because there was no one around to help guide or protect us from outside elements. I remember at a recruiting event my mom brought us to, the speaker put up a photo of a regular suburban home and basically berated anyone that thought that was good or the idea of happiness. Anyone that considered financial security and owning their own, their own little home uh, that met their family's needs at success was an unmotivated and unimaginative sack of shit. If you were just willing to sacrifice for a little more for a little while, you could uh, earn mansions, cars, tropical vacations. The list was endless. And if that wasn't the scope of your dreams, then get the fuck out. Even as a very small child, I remember thinking, can't we just have a house? Any house? Why would wanting to not have to move every few months because we kept getting evicted make us absolute human garbage? I also remember when my mom would be home and we would cry that we just wanted to be with her. She would make us create dream boards with all the things she was going to buy us when she made diamond or emerald level of Amway. In her mind, that would make up for everything. I just wanted my mom. There are many other stories I have, but those are for me to work through, not you. But finally, uh, 16, at 16, I left my mom's, flew to Nebraska, moved in with my older sister and her family to try and get out of that mess. Everything was going pretty well until an unfor a poor, unfortunate young couple came over to my sister's house to talk to them about the most amazing products offered by their business, Amway. Needless to say, I lost my ever-loving shit on those idiots who did not see that coming. At the end of a very uncomfortable evening, they left without saying a word and never reached out to my sister and husband again. After all this, I will say that while this story unfortunately did not have a happy ending for my mom who died penniless, I do believe it did for me. While I am by no means a well-adjusted person, <laughs> me either, uh, I had children very young because I think I craved the family I did not have, but I've worked hard to put myself through school. I have a career that I love, that I'm good at. I married a truly amazing man. I bought my own little house. I'm raising my kids with all the love, supervision, stability, and common sense I did not grow up with. My dreams are small, but they are mine, and I could not be prouder of them or hold them more dearly. Meat sacks, please don't let anyone ever belittle your dreams or what you want for your life unless it's a weird sex slavery cult, then go fuck yourself. Uh, you are enough, your dreams are enough, and happiness is not found in making diamond, in mansions, and especially not in Amway. Dan and all the Bad Magic Productions crew, you guys rock your shit so hard. Thanks for the countless hours you put into all that you do. I've learned, I've laughed, I have some uh, <laughs> learned some very useful profanity combinations that have come in handy from time to time. Also, if this were to make it on a future suck, I'd love to shout out to my husband, Nick, and my brother, James. I love you, and you're both fucking weird as shit, and that's my favorite. Anyway, I appreciate your time. Hope all you in the Suck Dungeon uh, and out there in the world are staying healthy, happy, and safe. I'll continue to spread the word of the curious. You guys keep fucking killing it. Yours always, Christy. Well, thank you so much, Christy. I loved that message and that warning that you just shared. Yeah, your dreams are enough. I love that so much. I relate on some level. The whole time I, you know, done stand-up, you know, people have told me, oh man, I hope you get famous. I hope you get a sitcom. I hope you get a movie. Something along those lines. Uh, but that's not what I actually really ever set out to do. Not really. You know, I got swept up in thinking I should push for those things because people kept telling me. Mostly, I just wanted to be good at something I enjoyed and, you know, found just creative and fulfilling. That was my dream, just to be good at it and to make enough money doing it, you know, not necessarily to be wealthy. I mean, sure, if that fucking happens, but that really was never like the primary goal. It was just to make enough money to not have to worry about not being able to do it anymore and make enough so I could retire, you know, some someday. 
you know, we don't all have to live in a giant mansion. We don't all have to be fucking superstars. We don't all have to have 10 million Instagram followers. Uh, we don't have to be NBA all-star, all-star, yeah, all stars, fuck me, <laughs> or whatever. Some of us might just want to be a good dad or make a difference in someone's life or, or to have enough time to go fishing every weekend, you know, just whatever. So don't let some Amway recruiter or some other MLM type, you know, uh, make you feel like you're a piece of shit for not wanting to be the top seller, the best of the best. Not everyone can fucking get there. So why should everyone have to desire that? I don't know. You sound like you've overcome a lot get to a really good place, Christy. You sound fucking awesome, happy. That's the, that's the main goal in life. You know, if you're happy, you're winning. I bet you're a tremendous mom. Uh, have fun with those swear words. Have fun with Nick and James. Hello, guys. And uh, have fun with your kids. Hail Nimrod, uh, you beautiful bastards. Okay, last one. Let's end on some comedy. Uh, Cummins Law victim Bryant McMillan writes, it finally happened to me. I thought I was immune, but I got Cummins Lawed big time. I've been listening to Time Stuck for almost two years now. Never had an incident, even though I've listened to every single episode. The incident occurred last Friday when I was heading out to meet my dad for a quick round of golf to wrap up the holiday week. It was a beautiful day here in Atlanta. I was driving with my windows and sunroof open while listening to the latest episode of Is We Dumb? Nice. In hindsight, that wasn't my smartest idea, but it happened. I was stopped at a red light when an older gentleman on a Yamaha motorcycle pulled up next to me. Before I had time to react, Dan's voice was emanating from the car loudly, screaming, jerk me off with a fistful of Bill Gates' blood money! Blood money! <laughs> yeah, that's tough to hear out of context. The old man looked at me, slowly started inching his bike forward as if he was desperate to get away from whatever I was listening to. And I can't say I blame him. Also just wanted to add that I love the story of Dan getting Kyler to drive him home when he was drunk. I've had to do that for my father numerous times so I can totally relate. And boy, do I have some stories. Waffle House at 3 a.m. with your drunk father is quite the experience. Not sorry for the long message. Hail Amway and praise Bojangles. Well, uh, thank you, Brian. Uh, Man, the thought of that guy giving you the stink eye kills me. Also, glad you liked my bad dad story. Uh, that happened after Sucksgiving. I had, you know, maybe a little too much or maybe just enough Basil Hayden. I get a pretty good buzz. And Lindsay and Kyler took me to Sherry's Diner and then in a Dairy Queen run where I may or may not have yelled very inappropriate shit from the backseat uh, in the drive-thru. Uh, glad you reminded, or glad that that reminded you, excuse me, of some good times, Brian. Thanks for the messages, everyone. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. I don't know what was going on with my mouth today, you guys. More, more mushy than ever. <laughs> too, too many countries to try and say their words. Uh, more Bad Magic Productions content coming the rest of the week. Spooks was scared to death late Tuesday night. Silliness with Is We Dumb Wednesday at noon Pacific time. Uh, please don't destroy any libraries and then toss the books into a river this week. Please don't do that. Uh, you know, the less knowledge we have access, access to, the harder it is to keep on sucking. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In a fast-paced world... 
Every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.